Hello humans, my name is Jesse, aka The Bizzle, and welcome to Bizzlecast 16, which is my audio commentary for The Lord of the Rings Return of the King, the final of the three movies, the most epic, won 11 Academy Awards, including Best Picture and Best Director. I actually did the commentary for this one first, as I've been mentioning in the other commentaries. I just had the urge to do a commentary for Return of the King Extended Edition uh, for a number of reasons. One was just that I've been doing commentaries for the last couple months, and while I've only released one so far before The Lord of the Rings, the Duncan Jones movie, Moon, and I uh, wasn't sure that I was going to be able to do them, but actually came pretty naturally to me, especially since I've been sticking to movies that I've both seen many times and know a lot about, often from watching their audio commentaries and behind-the-scenes stuff, and movies that I also just feel passionately about are great and entertaining and groundbreaking movies, but it's been a great experience. But this was the movie that I really wanted to do even before I decided to do the trilogy, because there's just so much to talk about. It's four hours long, and for me, it flies by, and this is a case of a movie that's already over time and yet is even way better when you add the scenes that were cut from the theatrical edition not only because from a fantasy coolness standpoint um you know they're in 11 out of 10 um but because they're major character and drama and plot moments that i just don't understand how they could cut out, especially towards the end of the movie, and it really sort of undersold the climax a bit, if you will. There are a few scenes that needed to be in there, and you'll hear more about them when I get into the commentary. The main one that I'll just mention now is, after they win at Minas Tirith, they realize that there's an army between Frodo and Sam and Mount Doom where they need to destroy the rings. They need to draw out Sauron's remaining forces to clear the path. And there's really only one way for Sauron to bite on this trap. And that is for Aragorn to reveal himself as the true heir of Isildur, who's the one guy, you know, who truly scares Sauron because it was his ancestor Isildur who initially defeated Sauron 3,000 years ago, the end of the Second Age. And in the movie, you know, they're sitting around in the in the throne room of Minas Tirith discussing, you know, what they should do. And, you know, Aragorn comes up with the plan of, of laying a, a trap or a diversion. And, you know, Gandalf goes, Sauron will know we're up to something. He's not going to buy it. And Aragorn says, oh, I think he will. Immediately after that, goes in to another room, takes out the Palantir, which is the black orb, the seeing stone that we know Sauron has one of and is controlling people with, including Saruman and Denethor, even in the book, also controlled by the seeing stone, the Palantir. And he basically, Aragorn that is, picks up the Palantir, which no one can do without losing their mind. Even Gandalf will touch it. Holds a Palantir, basically tells Sauron to go fuck himself, shows him the reforged sword, and then, you know, Sauron acts angry, but then it realizes he wants to scare Aragorn or whatever. It shows Arwen dying. and He drops the Palantir, and you think that it's the Palantir that's shattering, but it's the necklace from Arwen that somehow falls off of him shatters which he had a vision of early in the movie you gotta keep that scene in his film so well 
It looks great. It's a great hero moment for Aragorn and for the good guys. And, you know, that's just a, a poor choice of editing there. I could think of 20 parts of the movie that I could cut out 90 seconds off to get that in there. Nevertheless, movie's glorious. The trilogy's glorious. Return of the King... And, you know, the movie's made close to or over a billion apiece worldwide just in the theaters. And what's great about it is, first of all, it rebooted the fantasy genre. We wouldn't have Game of Thrones and Hunger Games and all of that if not for Lord of the Rings. But furthermore, people that aren't into what they call high fantasy, which Tolkien invented, essentially, love these movies. Most Tolkien fans love these movies. And it's easy to see why. They're so well-crafted, and Return of the King just brings it all to a head. There's a lot of armies marching around, and a good amount of fighting, obviously. But you also have the Sam Frodo story in Mordor with Gollum, which is all-time classic. You know, up until the end, Sam <laughs> putting on his... Uh, his best Rudy impression puts Frodo on his back, carries him up to the mountain of fire. There's so much great fantasy stuff in Return of the King, from the men of the mountains and the ghosts there to all the trolls and orcs and, you know, the fell beast, the flying Nazgul. She loved a spider. You know, it's just, it's a fantasy nerd's dream. But it, that dream would never have been fulfilled without an amazing production team, an amazing cast, and a brilliant job of direction and writing by Peter Jackson and his crew. Really enjoyed doing these commentaries. Love these movies. They almost get better with age when you see the shallowness of so many epics now. And, you know, even Peter Jackson's own work with The Hobbit going full CGI is just so inferior to the costumes and makeup of all the practical orcs um, in the Lord of the Rings movies who are so much scarier and look so much cooler. Really, no one's doing that. I mean, Avatar went completely the other way with just pure CGI, which is part of the reason I hated it. But, you know... It was just the right place at the right time. I mean, they made three movies on $300 million, which is almost impossible. These days would be impossible. So I'm going to stop here after rambling for a while. Hope you've enjoyed the commentaries. Hope you enjoyed this one. And I might do a uh, wrap-up with Mr. Tuck to sort of close out the series, because we didn't talk about sort of bigger picture stuff in terms of Tolkien himself. His influences from the battlefields of World War One all the way to, you know, the, the somewhat disturbing kind of Germanic genetic overtones to what's going on in the book. The obsession with pure bloodlines and things like that and whether Tolkien believed in that stuff or it was just a reflection of the mythology that he was an expert, one of the foremost experts in. I think arguably he's the greatest scholar of like old English type stuff ever. I happen to believe it was the latter, that he was just reflecting the mythology that he was basing the series on, and especially if you read the rest of his writings and stuff from his journal. But he was a big environmentalist. He was, you know, very much anti-war. He's definitely not a pacifist. I, you know, I think the message of Lord of the Rings, if you just look at Aragorn, for example, who is sort of a pacifist in the beginning of the book, is that sometimes the bad guys are so bad you gotta fight them. I don't think he would have been against fighting the Nazis, but he's certainly not looking for war after his own experiences. So, alright, I'm gonna stop I'm babbling now and give you the little bit of the countdown information that you need in order to line up the commentary correctly. So, basically, depending on the media format in which you're watching the movie, 
it's not always aligned exactly the same. If you're watching the DVD or Blu-ray or any sort of official purchased version, like on Amazon Instant Video, the New Line Cinema logo is the first thing on screen and at almost exactly eight seconds, you see the words New Line Cinema. Um, but uh, at the same time, you know, with a little bit of tweaking as you're watching, you'll be able to line it up. You'll know exactly where it's supposed to be aligned. And if it's off by a second or two, it's no big deal. But I'm a stickler for this because I love audio commentaries. I listen to a million of them, and that's why I wanted to do my own, and I've had a blast. So in a second here, I'm going to count it down from three, two, one, and I'm going to say go. And when I say go, you should have your uh, version of the movie uh, queued up to zero hours, zero minutes, zero seconds. And when I say go, you're going to want to hit start with me, and hopefully everything will align correctly. All right, so get it queued up and about to start the countdown. Ready? Three, two, one, go. All right. Welcome to Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King, Extended Edition. I'm sorry if I'm making this difficult on you and you don't have the Extended Edition, but it really is far superior. Um, and I'll be pointing out the scenes that were cut that I think are really crucial. It's really the only one of the three where the extended edition is necessary, even though it's already like three and a half hours, and it's basically four hours with the new scenes, but you needed it, and it's not just because of the book. Um, I love the Lord of the Rings book, but I took the movies for what they were, ended up loving them. We'll talk more about that. So here we go, it's Smeagol, this is Gollum, many hundreds of years ago. Has a devilish look on his face, but doesn't look immediately evil. And there it's Deagle, his buddy, who has not long to live. This scene actually was filmed and then they weren't going to put it in. It's just too bad because Andy Serkis is just modeling Gollum the whole time. Now we get to actually see him live on screen. And he's a great actor. He's got a great look. And he does the Gollum voice, but, you know, less creepy and more, you know, human-like or hobbit-like. He's basically a hobbit. And this is straight from the book. So... While it is fan service, it really puts you back into the Gollum story. Because in the Two Towers, Gollum actually becomes a good guy for a while and really appreciates the love that Frodo seems to be showing for him and becomes their guide voluntarily. By the end, for reasons that really weren't the Hobbit's fault, bad Gollum came out in return, and so we really want to come back into the movie with Bad Gollum, and what better way than this? Uh, the way they spin the camera around is great. I wouldn't have gone with the close-up here, but gotta see the ring in the mud. Still beautiful, the perfect size. You can already tell it's the perfect weight. Props teams in these movies really sell the movies, I think more than anything else. Props and sets, effects. Uh, Smeagol immediately is attracted to it. 
And we know that the hobbits, and specifically Frodo, is the only one that can carry the ring long enough without, you know, giving into its evil power. Even though it almost kills him. So, you know, even though these river folk, as they're called, the river people, are related to hobbits, they seem to lack the instinctive, uh, you know, almost one-dimensional goodness that the hobbits have that counteract the ring. But another interpretation is that Frodo and even Sam and only a handful of the hardiest hobbits can handle it. And maybe this would be the reaction of normal hobbits. This fight is brutal. The screaming, hands to the face, biting. I I love that they kept this in. It really sells the movie, or at least sells the beginning of the movie and brings you into the final act, which is the return of the king. Choking is really hard to pull off from a stunt standpoint because you want to sell it, you want to really do it, but you can kind of see that he's shaking him around and not really applying pressure to his neck. And, you know, I'm never going to hold that against actors. I I don't want even the possibility of someone getting partially choked, so I'm fine with it, but it's just, you can just tell. That's why I would have not gone with the close-ups. Peter Jackson's big on the close-ups and some of his best shots and some of his most mediocre shots in the trilogy are uh, are close-ups. He's either super close or super far. Smeagol's realized what he's done. He only feels bad. Only feels bad about it for a second, if that. Right, and the fact that he's he's clutching the ring even though he's dead is a great visual. And right here, this is Hollywood people. He has three actual minutes on screen as himself, but Andy Serkis just sells Gollum, and this transition is awesome. So I saw the behind the scenes for this, and basically what they do is he's really losing weight. This is still Andy Serkis here, and just tons of makeup. He had to lose a lot of weight. He's still clutching it with the mud. So he started to make the faces of Gollum, and, and they modeled Gollum's actual facial uh, gestures and movements on Andy Serkis's performance. So here we go. If you've not seen the Lord of the Rings movies for some reason, and this is your first one, this is what it's about. This is a great image. I always wonder what they're biting into there. I mean, that's, you know, that's prosthetic teeth. It might be real fish. Why not? If it's organic and uh, clean of toxins. All right, so this is where it switches. This is actually still Andy Serkis right here. I believe. I don't know how he got himself to look like this. Okay, and it's slowly transitioning to CGI right here. Okay, there we go. Now we're in CGI mode. But it looks so good. It looks so close. And there, now it's Gollum, right there. That's when Gollum becomes Gollum from a, a, a visual standpoint. So like with the second movie, they start with the Hobbit story, which, like all epics, it, it, it's the main characters who have the mission. All the other battle stuff going on is a holding tactic, hoping against hope that Frodo is alive and will complete his mission. This happens in The Matrix, with Neo and Trinity really being the important thing and not the giant battles going on. 
same with Star Wars. Luke killing or getting rid of Vader and the Emperor was more important than destroying the Death Star, although that was important as well. So even though we know Gollum is back to bad Gollum, he seems to have retained his tricks. Trixie, as he says, how to manipulate them. Sam never trusts him, even when he is, you know, seemingly on their side in the middle of the two towers. But, you know, Frodo is completely fooled at this point and just sympathizes with him because he sees himself turning into Gollum. And they never actually say it. Um, in the movie, I'm not sure if they say it in the book, but if Frodo held on to the ring for a number of more months or years, he would become Gollum, essentially. And if it wasn't for Gollum <laughs> inadvertently destroying the ring at the end, that's probably where Frodo was headed. Ah, the Lembus bread. Works better in the books than in the movies. Just the quantities that they would need, even as powerful as it is. Now they're in Mordor, they have no choice. In Two Towers, they had some rabbits and some other stuff. Sam's still thinking they're going to make it home, or at least hoping. Frodo already knows it's probably not going to happen. This is the whole adding the for what that you did, Dean, but whatever. Journey home. And Frodo, for a second, believes just, becomes, uh, just because Sam believes. But, you know, Gollum still looks great. You know, he's best in Return of the King because they had the most time to develop the special effects. Still looks good in Two Towers. Doesn't really appear much in Fellowship, the first movie. You know, it's a little more seamless now because these guys pioneered it. And everyone learned from what worked and what didn't work. Uh, as I've mentioned, I think in a podcast, oh, I love this shot. Anytime you have heroes riding through a forest on giant war horses, I just get a giant nerd boner, especially because I love these characters. This is in the original cut. So Saruman, the evil wizard, who used to be the good wizard and the head of the wizard council, lost to the Ents, the giant walking trees, is now trapped inside his tower. This is just to remind us that the hobbits love food and tobacco, and they're probably smoking something else. The, the, the movies are that... Uh, but really trying to cover up the fact that the quote-unquote tobacco that they are smoking is just tobacco. I'll leave it at that. And they're drunk celebrating. 
<laughs> Vigo, rare smile from Aragorn. I mean, John Rhys-Davies, it's hard to overstate his role as Gimli. And most people don't know that because he was supposed to be way shorter than he really is. They filmed a lot of his scenes with stunt, like stunt doubles. That guy in front of him is not Legolas. And now that's whenever he's out of focus, it's a, a small person dressed up as Gimli. And so he had to deliver his lines a lot to not the actors he was quote unquote working with. And that is so hard to do. Those prosthetics apparently gave him horrible rashes and allergic reactions. And he just powered through it. And he nailed Gimli's sense of humor. He nailed what a, a, a dwarf should sound like, what he should act like. So uh, this is where um, the extended um, cut really starts. Because in the theatrical um, movie, basically, the Treebeard, the head of the ants, implies that they're going to just keep him in the tower. And Saruman dies in the book, although he dies at the very end in a part that's not shown when they get back to the Shire at the very end. So they wanted to kill him. I think. They just wanted Christopher Lee. May he rest in peace, recently passed. I like that he has the voice, capital T, capital V, the voice, which is from Dune, where the Bene Gesserit, who are a very secretive and powerful sisterhood who are manipulating everything in the galaxy, have some superhuman abilities. But the coolest one's called the voice, where with subtle inflections of their voice, they can get people to do things, unless those people are incredibly well-trained as well. They use it very sparingly and sometimes in just very subtle ways. When they're dealing with weak people, they will occasionally just try and control them. I'm pretty sure this dialogue is from the books. I just don't know where. Oh, what a great image. God, the tower. It looks so good. This looks better than tons of fantasy stuff today, including Game of Thrones. This might actually be a great opportunity in this movie to just rip Game of Thrones and why this version of fantasy and this realization of fantasy is so superior. Even though I get that Game of Thrones is flipping the good guy, bad guy thing. The Palantir, which it comes up later a number of times is awesome in the books and they make look exactly how I would imagine it semi-transparent not sure whether the images are on the surface or on the inside now Sar Saruman's giving them clues uh, he's also been trying to manipulate them I think he's just trying to get some final satisfaction here They still are calling Aragorn a ranger. I don't think people really get the Strider, Aragorn, LSR. He's got three names. He's a ranger. What does that mean? He's from the north. He's a northman. He has some special fighting powers. In the book, it's much better explained, but I think it communicates pretty well in the movies um, to the audience that he may have pretensions to be a king, or other people do. See, Gandalf is even heartbroken by what he's saying, but not because he's controlling him, just because he knows that Saruman is true to say the obvious, which is that Frodo should be dead, or will be dead soon. 
Gimli just wants to kill him. Legolas is on board. I like that. Not sure why Gandalf wants him. See, this is great. You know, they did this whole effect, and they just didn't put it in the movie. It looks a little fake, but the gravity of Gandalf's power. And this is the important part. Because in the, fellowship, in the Fellowship, when Gandalf didn't realize Saruman was bad, and then Saruman took him on, Gandalf wouldn't join him. He was able to take Gandalf's staff from him. And so this is the symmetry that bookends that. I mean, really, the scene doesn't contribute anything to the, to the movie from a plot standpoint, because these guys both end up dying anyways. But it's trying to reestablish our main heroes and that they're they're even trying for someone as horrible as Wormtongue who's done Saruman's bidding and betrayed his people. They still believe that a oh, lesser son of greater sires. Theoden knows he's right. But this is important for him. He wants to help Wormtongue, his former advisor, who put him under a spell. But that would be a victory against Saruman. But this is world building. I mean, this just makes the world feel bigger, the events even more important. This is all very convenient here. But the visuals are great. So, it's unclear why they shoot him with the bow. <laughs> Gandalf's almost smiling. I think Legolas thinks that they could kill Grima and maybe Saruman's not dead yet, but he was stabbed quite a bunch of times. And this is a great shot, is brutal. It's just awesome. This is why I wanted in the movie just for this. So, you know, Gandalf already knew that... Oh, this is great. It's going in the water. Gandalf already knew the enemy was moving. Okay, so in the regular cut, you don't see any of the Saruman stuff, you know, being impaled and going underwater. But you... So this is back to the regular cut. So Gandalf should know where the army is marching. It's the obvious geographical location. It's the closest to Mordor, where all the bad guys are. And it's the strongest kingdom, even though it's grown weak. And that's the kingdom of Gondor and the city of Minas Tirith. But for non-Tolkien fans, where the geography is you know, shown to us a couple times, you got to build it up a little bit. You know, and this is an obvious setup for a future scene that you know even when you aren't watching it. Gandalf won't touch it. I love that. It, no matter how powerful you are, we know that the planters aren't accounted for, and so Saruman, or I should say Sauron, the really big bad guy, has, um, oh God, the Sauron has at least one of them, and so you can't trust any of them because they're all linked. They built this whole city. And then they took it all down. Pretty amazing. And this is why filming back to back to back in a movie like this, you kind of have to because you see this in the second and third movie would not have been realistic. They would have had to set it up and take it down twice as they filmed the movies. 
This I loved. That they just took a moment to acknowledge the previous movie, Helm's Deep. Pretty much all of their men were killed. This is who's left of the kingdom. Now the hall is warm again after being cold in two towers. The king is back to being the king. The loyalties are reestablished. Aragorn takes an extra minute. He really feels the death, even though he was the only reason they won that battle of Helm's Deep. Yeah, another scene you don't need in the movie, but a drinking contest moderated by Eobar between Legolas and Ghibli is just brilliant, and you know where this is going. Totally excessive. This is one of those scenes what I love... I wouldn't have necessarily put in the extended edition only because the other scenes that were cut, like the previous one or parts of the previous one, you know, maybe they would have made it in. Aragorn really leads on AON, and it's been a while since I read the entire book. I know this was a part of it that she was in love with him, that her heart was broken, but the dynamics of it, it you know, I don't really remember. He should realize that she's in love with him. But, uh, you know, Aragorn's a smart guy. He's not like Keanu Reeves, you know, Viggo Mortensen. You would think Aragorn would know what's happening, but maybe he just doesn't have time to really think it through. He's got a lot on his plate, like saving Middle-earth and, uh, you know, becoming a king, even though he grew up running around in the forest. I love that Theoden is very aware that Aragorn is the reason they won the Battle of Helm's Deep in the Two Towers. And a sense of sadness, but there's also wisdom to it. He knows he's not long for the world. He's trying to be more honest with himself, especially after the humiliation of being basically mind-controlled by Saruman for a long period of time and doing and saying some horrible things. Just anything with Carl Urban. He's so amazing as Aomer. My favorite characters in the book are Aomer and Aon because they are amazing warriors. I love sort of the Viking culture that they're from. In fact, the music for uh, for the people of Rohan um, is very Scandinavian. It makes sense. Great warriors, not the most advanced, but honorable people who know how to fight and... They're the ones who are going to basically win the war, not the Gondorians. They have to save the Gondorians' lazy asses. Yeah. Okay, and then there's little things. This song is much shorter in the regular version. But there's an extra pause they add with Pippin that takes like three seconds that, sell, that sells... See, he's looking at Gandalf. He can't stop thinking about the Palantir, the... the Black orb. Yeah. See that this part they don't have in the movie. He doesn't give that look to Gandalf. Maybe they felt they didn't need to sell it anymore, but it works. This is a great exchange. They don't even look at each other. Oh, Aragorn's trying to make eye contact. Aragorn's really the only one that believes at this point. Even Gandalf's losing hope. He he's basically a demigod, you know. He's from an advanced race from across the sea. He's from the early days of Middle Earth. You know, he died fighting a Balrog in the lowest 
levels of hell and survived and actually got stronger from it. Aragorn can't do that, but Aragorn is a human, and the humans find a way to hope even when it's totally irrational. So the whole movie is cut up, and you kind of understand why. You got what's going on in Gondor, which um, will happen soon in this beautiful city of Minas Tirith. You have this, and then you have the armies of Rohan, the Rohirrim. So this is, there's still a little bit of good Gollum, or at least human Gollum, but he's back to being a slave of bad Gollum, who, who's who he really is. Yeah, Smeagol, who's good Gollum, he says he wants to see the Hobbit's dead, but he's not totally convinced. Bad Gollum is still... Oh, here it is, that he committed murder. Although, you know, it's possible he's murdered lots of people, you would think, but it doesn't change the fact that he murdered his best friends. See, now Smeagol, you know, the weak Gollum, the actual Gollum, is getting impatient once he realized that he wants the ring again. And it's his evil side that's telling him to be patient with a much more effective strategy because Sam will skewer him if he tries anything. So as a fan, you're listening to this dialogue and you know that they're talking about Shelob, uh, Shelob, uh, the giant spider. Which could be super cheesy, but they totally nail, and we'll get there. And they don't taste very good, do they? Orcs don't taste good. So, apparently, Shelob prefers the taste of hobbits and more normal flesh. And so this is where the story flips. And in most movies, you know, having the good guy over here, the bad guy's plan... You know, it's super corny and cliched, but this is how it is with the book because Gollum's talking to himself. He can't help it. I don't know if he even realizes that he's talking to himself. I think he thinks he's just having an inner dialogue. This is a great thing here with the stone throw, and then you see Sam come out of nowhere. This is a brutal fight. This is, I think, when they really sell. They sell it. But you see they pan away from Gollum whenever they can in terms of physical contact. So, you know, in the beginning of Lord of the Rings, or at least the beginning of Two Towers when we first really see Gollum, he is just a twisted, horrible creature. Now he's gone through a process of being redeemed briefly in the Two Towers. Now he's back to being a bad guy. But he still is able to channel that sort of victim complex. But Frodo is, is you know, Gollum is his pet slash, you know, not confidant, but they share the pain of bearing the ring. And Frodo's, uh, Sam knows that this is not heading in a good direction. <laughs> 
this looks great. And I talk about how uh, in the previous podcast that uh, Gollum looks much better in moonlight than daylight, and it just looks so good there. Has to do with his skin tone. <laughs> Although the drinking seed does sell the fact that Ghibli is passed the fuck out and not just sleeping. I like that Aragorn doesn't sleep. He's a ranger and the son of kings. Superhuman powers. Nothing crazy, but he probably only needs a few hours of sleep. It's interesting that Pippin, who's the dumbest of all the hobbits, I mean, they openly make fun of how stupid he is, is the one attracted to the plants here. Because you'd think he wouldn't want knowledge, but it has nothing to do with that. It has to do with the fact that in that brief instant that he picked it up, Sauron implanted something horrible in him to make him d desire it again. This is just beautiful. I don't think this is in the uh, um, theatrical release. Again, another scene. We know that she loves him or is in love with him. And Aragorn, again, is doing nothing to dissuade her of her feelings and the potential that he feels the same way. He just really cares for her, has come to care for her. She can't see that. And what I love about this scene is, in the drinking scene, you could see in her smile and her eyes that she was just completely stricken um, with love. But this is a friend moment right here. This is her having a nightmare about the coming darkness and him comforting her. Which does make her, you know, probably love him even more, but the way she plays it, you know, it's not like she's flirting with him or anything. She's truly trying to make a connection with him, and it's those human connections that really make the movies. The cast is awesome. If you listen to any of the commentaries or read anything about the movie or watch any behind-the-scenes because they did three movies, these people bonded so closely. They spent so much time together. They did social activities together in New Zealand. They went scuba diving and surfing. And, you know, you can just tell the love of the cast, which I always say about the Firefly TV series in the movie that came after Serenity, is that crew, in a short time, grew to truly love one another. To the point now, we're like 13 years past Firefly, if you follow any of the Serenity people on uh, Twitter, they're still constantly talking to and about each other. This is great. You know, Legolas the Elf, you can tell what's going on. That's a green screen shot there, maybe, but, you know, this is the benefit of filming in New Zealand and doing all these locations and having the time to do it. That could very well be a real shot from Edoras, the, you know, cardboard city that they construct on top of the hill that is the capital of Rohan. I love Kandoff with his eyes open, sleeping. Can't believe after everything. Pippin's not just scared shitless of the Gandalf. This seems a little unlikely, but we do learn that as ancient and powerful as Gandalf is, he is getting old. It's not just how he looks. A little old, a little slow. But hobbits are sneaky when they want to be. It's so beautiful. I wonder what that's made of, if it's really glass. I wonder if it's even black, or they just CGI'd the black. Okay, so obviously that's some sort of CGI. This is all computer stuff, but... You know, um, Pippin, the actor, just plays it so well, the pain and agony of it, and the eye of Sauron is always scary. 
lidless, wreathed in flame. This is great. Acted and filmed so well. The choppy slow motion, maybe a little much. You know, I wonder if they filmed this in like 60 frames per second. Is which how you're supposed to do slow motion, or whether they just decided to slow it down later. Great transfer. The effects transfer as well. Aragorn can hold it briefly. Fool of a took. Someone pointed out that, you know, in the book, oh, they're always saying fool of a took, so you wonder whether, you know, Tolkien was aware of the double O's, you know, partial rhyming. I love that Gandalf heals him. One of the best parts about the Lord of the Rings book and the movie is the restraint when it comes to Gandalf's magic. I don't know if they even ever refer to it as magic. He has powers, but he saves them because his powers are much more subtle than Saruman's powers are. He's, he's a healer. He's a guide. He's a protector. You know, if Saruman is a representation of offensive power, magic, then Gandalf would be de defensive, protective magic. Which, you know, if you've ever played a, a mage or sorcerer versus a cleric at roleplay games, Nerd Alert, you know the difference between the, the, the healing powers of clerics and sort of the lightning and ice bolts of mages, which is more for offense. All that stuff comes from Lord of the Rings, but Lord of the Rings itself is the most restrained of all the fantasy movies and television shows out there in terms of magic, other than Game of Thrones, which, other than the dragons, I don't know what the magic stuff is. I don't watch Game of Thrones enough, but... An honest fool he remains. So, right, so they this ends up working for them because he's as much of an idiot as he is, he's strong enough to resist Sauron, and he could see into Sauron's mind somehow. Just pretty crazy to think about. These hobbits are so powerful. The heir of Elendil, that's referring to Aragorn. Elendil was the last great king of Gondor, and since the line has been broken. I, I think Gandalf, you know, already suspected that Minas Tirith was the objective, but this just confirms it. And this is, again, a case of Gandalf pushing a little too hard on Theoden. This happened in the two towers, he pushes Theoden too hard to stand their ground and fight, and instead they flee to their fortress at Helm's Deep. Fortunately, there's no way out of that fortress, and they weren't expecting, you know, 5,000 orcs. And, you know, Aragorn had to save their ass after pretty much everyone died. Gandalf knows the road he needs to walk down, but it's not until Elrond shows up later with the sword that Aragorn truly accepts what he has to do. So this is like the books. Pippin goes with Gandalf to Minas Tirith. It's a great device by Tolkien to separate him and Merry, 
which ultimately makes the relationship stronger, but also lets them finally have their own stories. Up till now, Sam and Frodo have shared the exact same story. Up until now, Merry and Pippin have shared the exact same story. Now it splits, and they both grow and mature because of it. Merry's already grown a lot. He's just getting fed up with Pippin's, you know, denseness. That was an interesting shot. I'm not sure if that was CGI or a, a double, character double. So, you know, they they raise him way above where he normally would be sitting to make the horse look huge. Yep, Mary knows. Pippin's journey from here on out is a process of of maturation as well as bravery. Mary's is more one of courage. So the way they do see... Okay, so that is the stunt double, and now he's on his knees... And so it doesn't quite match up. You know that he's on his knees, and the faces are now the same size, which isn't supposed to be the case. But you want these actors acting with each other because acting is always better when they're actually interacting with their their you know uh, their mates, their co-actors. Everything with the elves in this trilogy is amazing and beautiful and ethereal and exactly what they should be like. Liv Tyler was brilliant casting. I don't know what's happened to Liv Tyler, but she's so beautiful and so charismatic. I just don't get it, but she is Arwen. And, you know, Arwen doesn't really exist in the actual trilogy. She's referenced. Oh, this is great. She has a vision of their son. But Arwen is not an active character, although in the appendices, which are also gospel, they tell the story of Aragorn and and Arwen, and it's beautiful. And so they just worked it into the story, and it works great. You need a love interest. There's no women other than AOM um, in, uh, in the trilogy. You need another female character, and it makes perfect sense. He is really the main hero, Aragorn is. And so for the love interest, to be already set up by Tolkien's own writing. It's just perfect. So I loved it. I know some hardcore fans that didn't. Um, from here on out, I won't refer too much for what hardcore fans did or did not like. I'll just tell you what I liked. This boy is amazing. What a cherubic, cherubic face, if I pronounce that correctly. <sighs> you know, so sweet and innocent. Totally looks like an elf, a half elf child or half human child. There's Agent Smith, I mean Elrond, who 
manages to come off as really a good guy, although he does bring a little bit of that darkness. But the elves are done so well, and, you know, I think it works for non-readers when they see the movies because it's so beautiful, and the actors who play the main elves are so damn good. I mean, you got Kate Blanchett and Hugo Weaving, Liv Tyler, pretty amazing. I love this stuff between them. Elrond lied to her. Or at least didn't tell her the whole truth about the sun and the possibility of winning the war. He's already accepted, you know, in his mind that the war is lost. See, he says that future is almost gone, and she says, but it is not lost. He has to admit, even a prophet like him, nothing is certain. And that's a beautiful line. Some things are certain. Love. That's what she's talking about. Love for him. Love for Aragorn. Love is certain because it's irrational. You can't quantify it. So you can't put it to a scientific test, which is normally the way we judge certainty. So by that definition, if you believe in your mind that your love is certain and the other person does, then it is certain. It's radically subjective, but it's also not subject to empirical examination. The Broken Sword is great. So in the book, um, the Broken Sword is reforged early on in, in, in the Fellowship of the Ring part of the book. and In their first visit to Rivendell, when the Fellowship of Nine first formed, that's when he gets the sword. But I love that they move it to the end of the final movie. It's such an important character moment for Aragorn and Elrond. And by extension, Arwen, because that's why Elrond decides to, you know, help one more time this impending disaster that humanity has partially brought upon itself. I love this idea. Her hands aren't probably cold by our definition of cold, but by the, the elf standards, he can feel it. And so we learn that, you know, elves can choose to lose their immortality. They're not, you know, cursed with it, if you will, or, or, or fated to it. Here we go. He's like, all right, she's dying. There's nothing that's going to make her happy now other than Aragorn succeeding, and I should probably do this. The slow motion's a little funny on this, but anything where they're forging, you know, medieval weapons with, you know, in, in like an actual forge and hammering it. Oh, it's so great because it looks like it's finished, but you could, but they know that it still needs some work to be the perfect and ultimate sword. One of the many things that's awesome about the Lord of the Rings books and movie, the big ass hero sword. I grew up, you know, in middle school, high school, just dreaming for a pure replica of William Wallace's sword from Braveheart. Luckily, I never wasted my or my parents' money on that, but I thought about it too much. A beautiful shot of Minas Tirith, much better than the brief one we get in Fellowship of the Ring. Now, for the most part, Minas Tirith looks amazing, both inside and out. 
And this is one of the great cinematic scenes of all time. You know, you have the swelling music, but it's not over the top, and it builds in the exact way that the seven levels build. There's seven levels to Minas Tirith. Lucky number seven. This looks totally real, even though it's totally fake. This is actually what they call a bigature. It is a very, very, very large miniature model that they then blend with CGI to look extra real. This is probably pure CGI. Oh, there's the trebuchet. It does not armed. It's sort of like a... a uh... Oh, God. Trebuchets are sort of an advanced form of catapults. We'll see that later. That's amazing. The white tree. This is exactly how it is in the book. They just get the look right. And so even if they change, you know, 10 to 20% in terms of plot and dialogue, for me, they get the look and feel and the aesthetics and just the sort of instinctive feel of Middle Earth totally right with very, very few... With very few exceptions. This is great. He tries. He shouldn't have brought Pippin with him, but he can't let him go because he's too much of a troublemaker. He's telling him everything he shouldn't say, and of course, immediately, Pippin says the things he should not say. But he's actually right to do so. Great. I love this. It, it, you know, this sells the steward. Why isn't he sitting up on the throne with those narrow stairs? Because he is the steward, and even though he doesn't believe the king will ever return, he believes himself to be basically the king at this point. He's losing his mind and power hungry. He still has to sit on the chair below and next to the throne. By the way, I, I mentioned earlier that Aomer and Aowen are my favorite characters. I will get back to that. So this is a mirror of the two towers when he comes with tidings and counsel to, to King Theoden, although he realizes Theoden is completely under Saruman's spell. This is a lot more subtle. You know, this guy isn't under anyone's spell per se. He's just despondent by the death of Boromir. Here we go. I love that they show this. Again... Everything looks consistent because it was all filmed at once. The color, the color dynamics and saturation in the movies are just amazing. It's so colorful, but, you know, it's like this really dark, cold, cavernous throne room here, and he's all in all black, but just Pippin's hair and the elf clothes, it just looks great. Yeah, Pippin and Merry are really the, you know, they, they were there when Boromir saved their lives and died for it. It's a great line. The mightiest man might be slayed by one arrow. Boromir was pierced by many. Which is, which is a very noble thing to say, but it's also not what Denethor wants to hear. This actor's great. He appears in a bunch of stuff. I think he's on Fringe. Where Gandalf immediately gets pissed at him. We can imagine that a couple of years ago, they were probably, you know, on good terms. 
Here we go. So Mithrandir is Gandalf's real name. Yet for all your subtleties, you have not wisdom. So he, he, he like Theoden, when Theoden's under uh, Saruman's spell, thinks that he's just full of tricks and, you know, warping people's minds, but he's really just telling the truth. But this is actually, Denethor is right about this. Denethor knows the supposed king is coming. He doesn't want to give up his, his own mini throne there. And Gandalf loses it. Last of a ragged house, long bereft of lordship. Great line. The Return of the King, there it is. Steward. You know, I, I think he doesn't buy Aragorn. I think he thinks Aragorn's a fraud. But even if he believed that Aragorn was the descendant of Elendil and, and the former kings, I still think he wouldn't want to give up his power at this point. One thing that the movies do really well, um, which, you know, some purists might not love, is take lines from other parts of the book and give them to other characters in other parts of the movie. So it's hard for me. It throws you for a loop unless you've just read The Lord of the Rings. It works so well. Gandalf's whole speech here about faint and fading hope, the king will come. You know, Gandalf's old enough to know, um, you know, what the uh, what the city was like in, in the glorious days. Um, they don't show him in the opening battle and the beginning of Fellowship of the Ring, but I have to assume he was there then or shortly thereafter. This is all added. I mean, it just looks amazing. And what's great is they treated the extended cut as if it were the theatrical cut with all the effects and the sound and everything because they knew they were going to release the extended cut later. They're very ahead of their time. Tons of people own the extended cut. I only own the extended cut. I think I own the non-extended cut of The Two Towers because that's the one I don't particularly like. But the movies that I'm familiar with are these, is this one. Great shot of Mordor. You know, in 2003, when this came out, movies with great special effects, even The Matrix, had trouble blending, you know, very different images that were juxtaposed upon one another. So Sauron controls weather. He is spreading smoke and flame and covering daylight because orcs can't really function in pure daylight so he's sort of laying a path through the clouds in the sky so that the orcs can march when the shadow of mordor reaches the city it will begin because at that point the orcs can go into the city avoid sunlight and pippin's ready to get the hell out of here Back to the Trinity, if you will. Sam being the father, Frodo being Jesus, the son, I suppose, and Gollum being twisted manifestation of the Holy Spirit. Because as evil as he is, he, although unwittingly, 
is the one who destroys the ring. And so something may be operating through him. And this is Frodo's response to Sam's comment before. Like, this is a one-way trip, buddy. Don't really need this scene. Uh, the, uh, Sean Astin's performance is great, talking about going there and back again, referencing the Hobbit and Bilbo Baggins, Frodo's uncle. You know, Sam has to keep trying to provide hope and comfort to Frodo, even though he sees Frodo's descent and Gollum being a part of that descent. This is an extended edition thing. That's world building and... You know, stuff like this happens all over the book. Look, there's like graffiti on it. This is just what makes the universe feel so large. Now, again, this is one of those on-the-nose scenes, which is why they probably cut it, especially because it didn't have any specific plot relevance. Um, but... The whole brief sunlight and then back in the shadow. You need those small little touches of life in these horrific circumstances. This is a great scene. And this is a scene where Pippin is kneeling the entire time. And you can tell he's kneeling. There's not a body double there, but you want the actors interacting, and so, you know, you got to do it. And it works in this circumstance. He's still not <laughs> picking up the fact that he volunteered to fight, and now he's like, I don't really have to fight, do I? Gandalf is, you know, not giving him any ways out. He knows Pippin needs this. So, little things. They actually cut out a bunch of this coughing, this whole coughing bit. He does cough a little bit in this scene, in the, the original cut. But, you know, the studio is constantly pressuring them for less smoking. Because, you know, smoking is not good now. But and it's, you know, quote-unquote a kid's movie or a family movie. But they just put in coughing and coughing, which I think you should leave in because it shows that smoking too much makes you cough and sick, but that's not how they operate. All right, so now he's kneeling. This is a set with CGI in the background, looks seamless. Now the way they position him and Gandalf, it's not like before where Mary was kneeling next to Aragorn. Because Gandalf is well behind him and to the side, he's not where you think he is. If you watch Gandalf walk there briefly, he's not at a 45-degree angle. All right, so there's a body double for Pippin. And it's usually back-and-forth shots, so, it, you know, it works. You know, they have Gandalf hunching over to speak to him. It, this is it, uh, you know... It, if you're not pumped for the war that's coming, then you shouldn't be watching this movie. Oh, they hint the elephants, the Hooray Dream from the South, Mercenaries from the Coast. So I don't want to go into sort of the political geography, but, you know, the further east and south you get, the more evil you get. I mean, Mordor is in the far southeast. Further south are the evil men we just saw. Um... People have accused us of racism, but he really was basing this on Northwest Europe, you know, like Africa and 
and Asia weren't really in the picture. But but even more so, this was based on Norse mythology, on Old English mythology, Anglo-Saxon mythology. And so it's going to be from the perspective of people from the North and the Northeast, or the Northwest, I should say. The Shire's in the Northwest. Aragorn is from the North. Rohan, although in Central Europe, is very Viking and Scandinavian, so it's not a perfect match. Now they're introducing the Witch King of Agnar, and this is another thing that doesn't pay off in the theatrical edition. He's the lead ring wraith. He's the most powerful. He's the one that stabbed Frodo. And Gandalf's teasing a confrontation with him, which only happens in the extended cut, and is one of, I would say, two or three sinful omissions from the theatrical cut. They were probably six minutes total. One of them involves the Witch King of Angmar, the Ringwraith we just saw. I love the look of Minas Morgul. I mean, those green lights are amazing. It looks super futuristic, but because of the sort of foggy, translucent glow and the weird magic that we know Sauron has, it, it works. And, you know, this is great. This is total Peter Jackson right here. It... it on the small screen, it just looks cool, but when you see it in the theater with the music and the stakes, it's pretty pretty scary. I don't find a horror to be... Well, let me say this. I like scary things in movies and TV, but I don't like the horror slasher ones. I like the creepy ones. I like this and what's about to happen. Two seconds... That is just like, what the fuck? Yeah, he's really losing it. By the way, his eyes not digitally enhanced whatsoever. I heard Elijah Wood interviewed. People ask him all the time if his eyes are digitally enhanced in this movie. There's a little bit of a color filter, but his eyes are that big and that blue. Elijah Wood just as just as oh man, oh. it would be or look sci-fi, but oh yeah, and they see the signal. It's the signal for war, but you know that Sauron has crazy energy powers, and so it totally works within fantasy. Stock footage of the people of Gondor. I should say stock footage, generic footage. Selling the people of Gondor, they don't quite do. The Rohirrim, the soldiers of Rohan, in both this movie and the previous one, Two Towers, are such a well-realized civilization. Gondor as a city looks amazing, and you're rooting for them because they're humans. Oh, yeah, baby. This still looks great to me. It looks exactly... I know it's not a dragon, technically, but it really flies like a dragon. And the movements are great. The screeching sounds, again, in the theater, horrifying. It's interesting whether Frodo can feel his blade because they're so close, or whether the Ringwraith guy, the, the Witch King of Angmar, the lead Ringwraith, just because of the proximity, or is he actively touching the sword trying to find Frodo? And that's why Frodo was attracted to the building before. The Great Battle of Our Time. 
you know, you have to earn sentences like that. And they earn it over a course of three movies. But so much has happened. The character development is through the roof for these kind of movies. You really buy the stakes, you know, being an all-time high. And so with the huge build-up to this over not just this movie, but all of them, Gandalf says a great battle of our time. And the orcs look great. Practical effects, one of the many reasons, one of the main reasons, I would say, that the Hobbit movies were really underwhelming. They just relied all on CGI. It doesn't look nearly as good. And I can only hope that in Warcraft, which Duncan Jones is directing next year, I believe, with Travis Fimmel, who plays Ragnar in Vikings, one of my favorite shows, and one of my favorite TV actors, and one of my favorite directors, are doing a Warcraft movie. Chess uh, references. You know, why invent games? Just play chess. You know, fantasy tries to come up a lot of times with all these weird devices. Like, you know... We're not going to play cards, but we're going to play with stones, but it's still going to be poker. No, just play cards. Gollum is scared here, and Sean Astin is all business. But this is actually the wrong speech to give because this just turns Sam, um, Frodo against Sam more because he just sees Sam, uh, Sam abusing Gollum. So this is the beginning of the Pippin redemption arc. He'd never done anything evil, but he's fucked up a lot and caused huge problems for them that has potentially killed them multiple times. And Pippin knows it, and he's getting this courage from Gandalf. Maybe Gandalf's using the voice on him, I don't know. It's hard to know when and how Gandalf is consciously manipulating people other than his words. I like that they leave it up to interpretation. Soldiers have no clue what's going on. They're seasoned. See, these are the Gondorian soldiers that you get with because you've learned about Faramir and gotten to know him in the Two Towers, who starts out as a weak character and ends up being one of the strongest. He's in charge of the defenses, even though his father hates him or resents him. But the battle strategy, these guys totally look like Game of Thrones-style warriors. But there's more ass-kicking in the next five minutes than in an entire season of Game of Thrones. One of my many complaints. Where's the fantasy action? Fine, give me dark fantasy with lots of bad guys. But where is the fantasy action? And when it's done, it's not that good. I love the, the commander with a deformed hand. He can still fight with one hand, but... The, the fact that in a, you know, hyper-Darwinian culture like the orcs, where the weak do not survive really ever, um, just amongst themselves, for the commander to be a totally deformed-looking creature that doesn't even look like an orc, he might not be an orc or a true orc, being in charge shows you that he's one of the few smart ones. Oh, the orcs are so scary. Yeah, the arrow's going through the thick armor. This is always the thing with fantasy and medieval stuff. Um, one of the reasons Vikings great is a lot of times they don't even use armor, and so that makes it much easier. But when they do use armor, you know, 
they move slower, but they're harder to kill. I'm not sure that arrow would have would have done it, but who cares? This is the the first big you know, medieval battle we get, and the filming is great. That whole set looks phenomenal. I bet it's only three rooms, and they just keep filming. They run, you know, they run through three rooms. They stop, and then they switch the set around, and then they keep running. You know, this is all a pretty small set, I think. This water is probably in a parking lot um, of some sort, or an empty lot. They fill it up with water, turn it into a pool. I like that while they're not totally prepared for the battle, the Gondorians have a plan of attack for situations like this. Again, a stalling tactic. They or Faramir and the other this guy, the other senior leader, his right hand man, they know what's going on. And this is great. You don't see this much. They just let the orcs run past them so that they can divide and conquer. Okay, go, 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 go. Divide the force. They're already running in the wrong direction by a couple seconds. And he doesn't even say anything. He just goes and everyone else goes. He is a mini Aragorn, and that's why the symmetry of Faramir ending up with Eowyn, even though it's not really sold great in the book or the movie. So it, it works great because you know he's Aragorn without the birthright to a kingdom. And in some ways is superior because he doesn't have a prophecy surrounding him. He doesn't have super human fighting abilities. I mean, he's a great fighter, obviously. This is so real. You know, I complain that PG-13 movies, the way they get around this uh, violent stuff is there's no blood. And how it bothers me because it actually removes the reality of violence uh, um, from the context. It's completely out of context. This is great. This is totally from the book. The lighting of the fires. Such an awesome concept. You know, I always joke with my friends about, we'll be seeing these guys up in the mountains, really, whose only job is to wait for the signal, which is not ever going to come as far as they know. How the hell do they get up? How do they get down? Do they have families? How do they get food? But it does not matter because in fantasy, it works. And you can come up with your own rational explanation if you want. So this guy right here, this guy right here is the visual effects supervisor. He's a New Zealander. I can't remember his name. Really cool dude. Just totally looks like a medieval knight. Peter Jackson appears in all three movies in small cameos. Amundine. And and what's great about the whole mechanics of this is that, you know, once the second beacon is lit, 100 miles away, here we go. And I love the super far shots where you don't even know where the fire is coming. Oh, okay. It's like, oh, here's a fire. And then there's going to be another one far away. So Dedathor, who's very against us, obviously, um, once that first or once the second beacon is lit 100 miles away, there's nothing you can do about it. He can't shut this operation down, even if he wanted to. And, you know, Aragorn and Theoden, as far as they know, Denethor uh, authorized this.
Totally, the hero music of the Lord of the Rings used to perfection. I mean, all they did was took incredible helicopter shots of the length and breadth of New Zealand and just put a little CGI fires up there. It looks great. I love this. Aragorn sees it before the audience. I mean, I know where it's coming from, but usually I, I can't even see it. I love that they don't like do a close-up on the last one. Love this Aragorn run. Apparently he was injured during this, which is why he looks like he's stumbling, but it totally sells. This is a great Vigo moment right here. Look at him. He's desperate and excited. And because of how natural it is, and he is begging the king, he's not telling him what to do. And, and Eowyn and Eomer are there. He knows Eowyn loves Aragorn. He doesn't want to say no to Aragorn. And he knows they're right. This is great. This little brother-sister moment. So I have a younger sister who I love very much. She's a few years younger than me. And, you know, in modern-day terms, she is a shield maiden, female warrior. She teaches really, really tough kids in public schools. And we've always had a great brother-sister dynamic, even though we didn't always get along growing up. Once I went to college, it was like instantaneous closeness. You know, and their scenes together in the book, for sure. But even their short scenes together in the movie, you totally buy their brother-sister relationship. And how she, you know, is living in his shadows a little bit, as all little sisters do, but... Forging her own path. Oh, this is great. They will follow you into battle. Meaning, I will follow you into battle. You've given us hope. You've given me hope. I don't think this was in uh, the theatrical. This does pay off, It does, but it pays off way more with this scene. And that's the thing. The extended scenes aren't always amazingly important by themselves, but they often lead to payoffs of other scenes that were in the theatrical cut and just add that much more depth. Yeah, how great would a Legion of Dwarves be? We saw it in The Hobbit, but it wasn't nearly as cool as we hoped. And we hear that war is marching on the elves' lands, which is true. Um, there's a whole story in Lord of the Rings in the background where the elves, in, toward, sort of north of here in the forest, are fighting the orcs in huge battles. And the It's at the same time, but in a different part of the world where they're also fighting, which I think is a brilliant idea. I mean, the amount of extras 
They look great. They all know how to ride horses. Oh, here, right back. I love how they're it's day, daytime now. They've been fighting for a long time. Now, you wonder at what point the orcs become ineffective. And Oh, God, that orc's so scary and cool. They're all awesome. They look totally different. This is a phenomenal battle scene. Um, it's much smaller and shorter, but it's the, probably the second best of this type of scene after the Helm's Deep final battle in the two towers. This is great. Yeah, they have this planned out, but they just can't assure, you know, be assured that, you know, they can't be assured they have enough men. I mean, most of this movie are humans getting slaughtered. Oh, this is great. That's a Hollywood shot right there. Straight up. Looks amazing. Horrifying. I mean, they're already losing the battle. And Faramir, yeah, um, quickly comes to the smartest decision of a lot of bad decisions. He makes the best, which is to get the hell out of there because they maybe can fight the orcs. They cannot fight the flying Nazgul. I love that he doesn't say anything. <laughs> he just shoves it right in him. Oh, so like I was saying, you know, they do reduce the blood in this movie as well, somewhat, for the PG-13. But the way the sounds of the weapons hit flesh and pierce it is so visceral and so real that I'm actually okay with it. If you really can feel... the the terribleness of being stabbed by a sword via the visuals and the sounds and the acting performance, that's that's good enough for me. Bullets are just too easy. It's too easy to just shoot people up. This really requires will. Okay, so this is probably the most, um, other than breaking Sauron's step, this is probably the most magic-y Gandalf gets in terms of direct, powerful, visualized magic that he can hold off the Nazgul, three of them, with this beam of light. I mean, that's three ring race right there, okay? That's a third of the ring race. And that he joins up with them at the front of the line is great. Just amazing shots of horse riding, as all three movies. I love horses. I love riding horses. I love everything about horses. Whether they're just normal horses or war horses, I dig it. It's a bond with an animal that you don't even get with a dog. will never be as affectionate towards you as a dog, but the oneness of riding, you know, 35 miles an hour and you being one with the horse is just amazing. No car or uh, car, motorcycle can do that. Right, so everyone's talking doom and gloom. Faramir is just trying to figure out what's going on. Gandalf's already talking shit about Denethor. See, all the threads just come together in the book and the movie. He's seen the halflings, he's seen Frodo and Sam, and he recognizes another one.
Gandalf seems to know about Shelob the giant spider. You know, probably has already suspected Gollum. It's this is just heartbreaking. He loves his father. All he wants is to be treated fairly. He knows he'll never be loved the way his older dead brother Boromir is. And he has to tell his father the truth, which is he gave away the ring of power, and that's enough to be killed and be executed. It's considered treason. Oh, he's so creepy and evil. One thing that they don't even have in the extended edition that's so clutch in the book is that we are told that Denethor either is or probably is playing around with a plant here of his own, the Black Orb. And so he's being corrupted by Sauron the way Saruman was corrupted. And so... It makes him not a more likable character at all or more sympathetic, but it explains some of his insanity, like this sort of stuff. Yeah. The Boromir thing is a cover for what's going on with the plant here. Unfortunately, they don't show that in the movie, but there you have it, folks. I'm trying to remember if this happens. Uh, I, I, mean, I like how they don't show what he's looking at. And cheesy shot, but does what it needs to do. Faramir can see he's looking over his shoulder, so he knows something is wrong. These actors are great. So many English, Australian, New Zealand actors, just fabulous. They all have Shakespearean training. It's obvious. So yeah, the color scheme of the ascent to Kirith Ungol, where the giant spider is. These rocks look so real. They look wet. They look natural. I have no idea how they did this. That's all green screen there. They had to build this thing. And the the city and the marching army behind them just looks so fucking real. See, this is all part of the plan. But he has a chance. He could grab the ring and kick him off the side of the ledge. Yeah, Sam's on it. Sam's journey is amazing. Sam's such a simpleton when the series starts, and he's really the wisest one. Frodo has the most knowledge because he's sort of the most 
intellectually smart and what everything he learned carrying the ring. But from a wisdom standpoint, Sam is really the rural everyman, which is who was being who were being romanticized by Tolkien. He loved the rural agrarian ideal. He wanted to go backwards, or at least gave compelling reasons to consider, if not going backwards, and at least returning to our roots. All of the environmental themes, a lot of those are in two towers, but they continue here. And this is the pl- and this is the final this is Elijah Wood just going in Gollum mode. See, this is great. Send forth all legions. With this guy's voice, he could just say the most simple things and they sound horrifying. And this also doesn't pay off because in the in the theatrical cut, the original cut, because he says, I will break him, but you don't see the battle between the two of them where he does break Gandalf and it's glorious. Yeah, because of the helmets and they look kind of the same and they look sort of imperial, they don't have that rustic, you know, romantic look and feel of the people of Rohan, the Rohirrim and Edoras. Also not in the original cut, but I love that these two have a bond. He's become very fond of hobbits. So he saw Sam and Frodo's heroism and the, you know, unbelievably unbearable burden that they carried. I like that. I like that his kid's uh, uh, uniform uh, fits Pippin. rare moment of humanity. Nice to see Faramir still holding on to his own humanity despite his father and what he knows is coming. The apocalypse. And now he's unloading some of his psychological baggage about the family dynamics. This is very well delivered by Pippin. And this whole extended scene leading to Faramir's suicide mission and Pippin singing is, you know, I I think the Academy wanted to give them a lot of awards for the third one, assuming it lived up to it, which it did. And the seven or so Oscars, including Best Picture, that they won for Return of the King, I always thought it was sort of a legacy. We're giving this to you for the brilliance of the three movies, the but this has Shakespearean scenes in a way we don't see in other, other movies. This this sequence, this is what you sent to the Academy. I mean, the Return of the King. It was Lord of the Rings. I don't think they needed to send material. But if you were to submit your movie, submit a scene. This is one I would put there. Really, anything between him and Faramir. 
The food thing is great. As I mentioned before, um, bad guys eating during bad situations with sad music is a great combination because it's always depressing and affecting. Yeah, straight up, would you trade our lives? But he doesn't believe it even. And this is where the Palantir thing would have really helped. They make him just look like an absolutely horrible person. And he is not a good guy. But since he'd been corrupted for years now from Sauron without knowing it, it makes this a little bit even more tragic because his dad would, in that case, not be doing it of his own volition, but thinking that he was. I mean, the problem is, even if Faramir wanted to take a moral stand here, um, you know, he's a traitor, essentially. I mean, it's implied pretty strongly that by openly and admittedly giving up the One Ring, he's a traitor. So I guess his father could just kill him, so he figures he's a dead man. But even if that were not the case, his pride and his nobility that his brother had while his brother was bigger and older and stronger he is the wiser one and but he's also the more honorable one um and oh god so this is like the matrix shot right over neo with his computer at the beginning and all his stuff i love these twisting down shots they always look great and again the uh, the the city below it just is seamless. You, I never think for a minute here that they are not on this cliff edge. So you can pick apart the minutiae of this particular plan, but I would say that Frodo is so far gone. His rational faculties are really non-existent. And so... With with Gollum having him, you know, kind of uh, queued up. He knows what's about to happen, but he still wants Sam to feel bad before Frodo, you know, betrays Sam, which Gollum knows is coming. Sneaking. <laughs> Actually telling the truth, but Sam doesn't realize it for once. So, you know, these are these touching but borderline cheesy moments that, because of the filmmaking, see, that's great, Gollum right into frame. They just make it work. It's very simple. But, you know, if my 11-year-old were watching this, yeah, it's, it's what I would want him to say or her to say.
Another brutal punch. I love Sam kicking Gollum's ass. You just want it to never end. But, you know, you can see that they pull back between the two shots a lot. You have to do it. And the fact that he's, he's regretful and apologetic, I'm always going, dude, don't be apologetic. Gollum deserved it. But he's just trying not to lose Frodo, but he knows it's lost. Okay, so in the book, Sam does carry the ring briefly. When Frodo is, when they're separated with the spider and Frodo is captured, and Sam goes to rescue Frodo, and this tower is kicking ass, and I believe he uses the ring. In the movies here, both versions, Sam merely you know, is sort of in attendant to the ring. I mean, it's around his neck or, or in his pocket, but he never uses it. And also in the book, Sam gives it right back to Frodo. In the movie, they play it up for, you know, suspense effects that Sam might be a little bit corrupted, which I actually like. It was funny, after seeing the movies and going back to the books, that was one little moment that I didn't see coming in the books because I, I thought I remembered it being... You know, Sam being hesitant a little bit, but in the books, he just gives it to Frodo because he's the manifestation of everything good and pure and natural in the world. But Sean Astin really makes it an interesting character. I mean, Sam's great in the book, but as a fully realized Hollywood character, have to add some emotional depth there, and they really do. Yeah, this is great. This is sort of the one part, or one of a couple parts, where you see a good number of people of the city and the, the throwing of flower petals or whatever, like a funeral. And so not only are the armies of Minas Tirith not ready because the steward Denethor has lost his mind, but he's about to send like 30 of his best and brightest, you know, Horse, horse fighters, and they're all gonna die, which isn't gonna help in the coming conflicts. Those are Peter Jackson's kids, they're always in the movies. They mention Numenor throughout the trilogy, and the reality is, if you've seen the movies but not read the books, Numenor is an incredibly important place from whence some of the races of Middle-earth came long ago. It's very difficult to piece together the mythology. If I could get through the entire Silmarillion, which is the Bible of Tolkien, 
Um, it would maybe make more sense, but it has to do with a very Germanic concept of pure and stronger bloodlines, basically. And the men of Numenor come to Middle-earth, and their blood mingles with the humans on Earth. And, okay, it's more than 30. It's more like 80. Souls going to their deaths for no reason. So, right, so Aragorn is of the line of Numenor. He has stronger blood. It's a very, you know... <laughs> uh, genetic fetishization or something. These are all the same sets, just redressed. Okay, so this is the continuation of the, the Oscar-worthy scene that I mentioned a few minutes ago. Now, some people find this song really corny, and the production is way over the top, but it's a pretty song, and with... Oh, look at the image of all that food. The cherry, blood... Yeah, you can't actually tell that it's overproduced until he goes way up high. I mean, this is a totally Hollywood device, but just look at Denethor stuffing his face. Denethor is just a manifestation of what power does to most people. Luckily, he's got a son who is a little bit better than he is. That's hard to do. Ride with the swords out. Stay on the horse. Yeah, that horse stuff is definitely filmed in very uh, fast, with very fast cameras. It's a very realistic slow-mo. I would have done an insert here of some of the soldiers getting hit by arrows. I get why they didn't do it. Probably saved some money. It was implied. And they wanted to show Pippin's, you know, horror at what's going on. But I think you could have had like a half second shot or a second shot in between there. While Pippin's thinking of just very brutal shots of arrows, whatever. See, this is the stuff that it makes it tough to do podcasts like this because, you know, I've thought about it so much. I love the books and so again, Rohan is mobilizing, but now in way better position and more organized. Numbers of people and distances in Tolkien are sometimes very hard to pull apart. He's too smart to have things not be a coincidence, but sometimes it seems like it takes forever to cross a small part of Middle-earth, and you can cross others much faster, but it still gives you the sense of distance. This is great. Anything with these two. Aragorn, the voice, voice of reason. 
think Theoden believes in him now. So Aragorn's taking over. I, I mean, it, he's letting Theoden still be king, obviously. And the truth is, even though Aragorn's king of Gondor, or will be, Gondor's a much bigger, more powerful nation, but it does not have domain over Rohan. So in theory, at best, Aragorn is the equal of Theoden. Of Theoden. But because of how Vigo delivers the lines... It's not a threat or even an order. It's saying, here's my strategic assessment. We need to ride it on no matter what. Look at Carl Urbabad, just killing it. I mean, he just, he is a knight, you know. Some guys just get it, you know. Vigo gets it in his own way. Um, as Aragorn, Aomer, played by Carl Urban. Just straight from what you love about the book. Did I just see a skeleton there? I love it, yeah. He doesn't lecture him, he just says, let's eat. I like that the initial part of the Path of the Dead is actually outdoors. It's just a very narrow pass through tall, uh, tall mountain. God, how can you not love Miranda Otto? I think she's starting to get some more roles. I hope so. She just has such an interesting beauty and strength about her. Just insane eyes that are always watery. So he's sort of her proxy. And that's why she gets pissed when her brother makes fun of him. See, that's seamless. That's a, that's a nice work there of merging the two images. I do not doubt his heart, only the reach of his arm. Again, she's talking about herself. Amor is picking up on it, it's a sister, those he loves, which, you know, they're implying Aragorn, but it includes Mary, and includes her brother and her father, or her uh, uncle. They cut this. And again, terrible cut. You gotta have this. The whore of battle, putting in her place. Right, exactly. He's saying, if I were a hobbit, I would stay far clear of it. He shows he cares for the hobbit. Again, which I like. He shows intensity towards a sister to, you know, not put her in her place, but challenge her assumptions. But he cares about the hobbit. He just expresses it differently. Here we go. Again, I referenced this earlier. What's about to happen happens very early on in the books. This is the way to go. The the sword, you know, embrace being the king with the sword thing. You got to do in Lord of the Rings. Must. This, I love how he sleeps with a knife and has trained himself to to uh, pull it out when he's surprised. Again, this could be super cheesy. They don't do much music. Liv Tyler sells it with minimalist performance. 
Okay, and you see this in the movie, but in the extended edition, you see that it actually happens and why later in a very dramatic scene. So, you know, there's probably 12 to 15 cuts they took out of this movie, and I really think seven or eight of them just need to be in there, and that's why I prefer the extended edition, even though it's, you know, an entire night of watching stuff. Um, I can't remember who I thought this was. I didn't think it was Arwen. I probably picked it up. I love the horse banners for Theoden and, and Rohan. Hello, Mr. Anderson. What you can do with his voice is amazing, Hugo Weaving. He's not happy about this. Which is callous that he wouldn't want the humans to win, but he's doing this for her. So the best way of saving her life is to destroy Sauron. She's tied up with the ring now. Yep, tied to the fate of the ring. So uh, uh, Gandalf prepared him for the ships, but not that they would be arriving so soon, I don't think, is the idea here. So the mountain ghosts, which we will see shortly, there's one, that's the king. You know, the idea behind why they fight for the humans, because they owe a debt, because they were traitors is a great concept and visually looked pretty good, but they clear the city. And then as Gimli says, you know, these guys are good in a pinch. Maybe we shouldn't let them go, but you know, Aragorn. But again, they cleared out the city so quickly. It's like, why even fight the battle in the first place? It's great how he takes out of his robe. I have no idea how they did that. It's so big, even with that giant robe. And here's the hero moment. Yeah, it's interesting that Sauron, as powerful as he is, he's not even embodied at this point. Beautiful. Ugh. So phallic, so great. It's an interesting response. I keep none for myself. I keep no hope for myself. Is he just saying he's going to sacrifice? Uh, 
And this is, we know it's happening. The way she says the man, you just know she's saying me. Yeah, is he acting ignorant here? He has told her that the, there is a woman, although he hasn't said much about Arwen to her. So she knew something with the necklace. She did lead herself on a little bit. But God, the way she plays this, it's, it, it's so sad, but beautiful. Oh, God. And now he's just rubbing it in. Yeah, it's not a great Aragorn moment. And maybe he's just being a nice guy. He is the king of Gondor, after all, right? I hope he's a little nice. She sells it great, not over the top. Those watery eyes just work perfect. Oh, this is great. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> That's a weird look. Vigo has some very, like, uh, you know, Hollywood stud, uh, uh, just weird facial things he does. And he doesn't explain it to anyone. I, I can I think I can understand the motivation for not explaining this. <laughs> uh, but, but for the king not to know, uh, the way Theoden says he does what he's doing, what he's must or whatever, I think that he must have said something to Theoden, King. This is the really Viking thing right here. Yeah, the honor is the battle. It's not the victory or the defeat. Very uh, Scandinavian, Northern European, medieval. Another beautiful shot. Could be on location. Could be green screen. I have no idea. Okay, so this is back at a set. See, they're not showing the, the sky. It's great that she just becomes the ruler. There's no, you know, oh, women aren't supposed to rule, blah, 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 blah. He really loves her. She She represents all the goodness and humanity that he wishes he had more of. So he knows what happened with Aragorn, or he can just read it on her, because she's been smiling nonstop for, a, a, you know, a movie-length time. She's so white. I wonder, I mean, she's so pale, which is part of why she's really beautiful. It works with her complexion. I wonder if she's that pale, or whether they even powdered her down a little bit more. Either way, beautiful, so strong. And she's going to get her kick-ass moment, and this is, you know, we'll get to the moment, but, you know, 
Aon is one of the key fighters in the Bucks and, you know, kills one of the big bad guys, if not the big bad guy. Um, the the lead ringer eighth in awesome way that they do great in the movie. She's fantastic. And I hope that, you know, girls identify with her because she's a warrior, but she's a, she's always fighting to defend people, defend her people, defend other people. So it comes from a good place. This location must have been impossible to find, or maybe it's like really famous. So this is all about, how, you know, how th these men were supposed to come fight in Gondor's need and they betrayed them. And so they were cursed and turned ghost into the mountains. That's basically what's going on here. It would have been cool if there were some religious elements or mystical elements and stuff like this, but Tolkien really wasn't into it. Tolkien was a Catholic. I think he was practicing. I don't know what level he practiced, but he very much identified as a Catholic. And unlike C.S. Lewis, who's always talking about God and Jesus through various stories and parables, Tolkien made this world basically a polytheistic world where the gods are, are mostly removed from the... Uh, affairs of man other than you know sending people like you know Sauron who was once good and Gandalf and, and those people this uh extended sequence also has a very cool part that um that I can understand why they took out but was was executed well it's a <laughs> A waterfall of skulls. <laughs> I love how he just says, I do not fear death. Just convincing himself. Great fake skulls. I mean, you see him here. Legolas doesn't say anything. He just takes a deep breath. Gimli goes for peer pressure reasons for the most part, which is great. He acts the toughest, but he's he's sort of the most human and and putting on an air of fearlessness, but he does have some have some fear. Although when he's fighting, he has total bloodlust and no fear. This is great. They totally sell the immediacy of this. Aomer is right there. He's taking it all in. God, he's so good. Aomer, Aowen, favorite subplot of the entire series. So this is in the original, even though you didn't see their previous conversation. Three-day gallop. Okay, so I'm trying to visualize this on the map. You can probably go anywhere from 20 to 40 miles a day on horses, depending on how you use them in the terrain. So we're talking somewhere between 60 and 100 miles Her mask is so goofy. They sh they should have opened it up. I know it's more practical this way. And she had to hide herself. But she does take it off eventually. It's great. Theoden's the leader, but Aomer is the war leader. The, the overall strategy comes from the king, but Aomer is the tactician. This looks great. All this stuff coming up with the horses just looks phenomenal.
you know, a lot of this movie is armies marching, but so with the four hour extended edition, it's pretty neatly divided into two, two hour halves. We are coming up on the two hour half. So this whole series of scenes um, sets up a lot about the story that's not apparent when you're first watching it. Yeah, Legolas can see the spirit world. But the main thing this sets up, if you remove sort of the tactical element that, um, you know, they get these ghost soldiers to fight on their side. And the taking of the ships that we keep seeing that are invading from the south. But there's really one main thing this sets up, which is to prove without a shadow of a doubt, that Aragorn is king and that he is fit and meant to hold that sword. Because he's the only one that can control and resist these guys. And so through this really weird spirit world is where we get the true confirmation of Aragorn's status as rightful king. That's a lot of blowing air there by John Rhys-Davies. I'm not sure he had fun with that. Oh yeah, so this is the skull part. I'm not sure if this was taken out for the PG-13 thing. Or they just thought it was excessive. It is excessive, but it's pretty fun at the same time. And the sound effects are perfect. It totally sounds like dried out skulls cracking. Yeah, they just they just stay on this too long. It's just some dark comedy that didn't really hit. They sell their oh, this is great. This is straight from a video game. This is like playing Diablo or something like that. It looks awesome. You know, I wish they had more of just showing the party from distance. It it, it you know it, it's role playing game stuff, but. All right, so here's King of the Dead here. Looks great, I think. I think the dead look pretty awesome. And look at the color and the hair. It's pretty psychedelic. There's clearly a human face doing some of that uh, facial motion, but... It's a CGI character. I like that they show the old city. I wonder if it was buried. I can't remember. I think it was a mountain already. Maybe they were just people of the mountain.
Here we go. Only the oh great hero sword shot. Oh. oh. Yeah, talk about remaking the line. You know, there's some sort of Dune-esque Bene Gesserit genetic ma manipulation going on, but they wouldn't think of it in those terms. Probably a lot of incest. Oh, man. I hope Aragorn is not involved with that or a product of that. But he came out pretty good. Gimli's all empowered now. And the evil crackling laugh, cackling laugh. <laughs> Stand you traitors. Okay, so in the theatrical version, the scene ends right before here when they disappear. And we don't see them again until the ships arrive and the orcs are there and off jump the three heroes and then all the ghost guys come out. And it's a nice surprise that you kind of think is coming, but it's cool. Here, they extend this a while, and then they t the ghosts tell Aragorn that they will fight for him before they even get on the ships, which makes the reveal later not much of a reveal. I could go either way, honestly. I don't really feel strongly. I like how this is signaling... Some sort of they're leaving the cavern is all their skulls. Yeah, the behind the scenes on the skull thing is pretty wild. There are a lot of actual real skulls. This is the first time Aragorn truly despairs. First and last. He failed in his mission, or so he thinks. The ships are burning. Everything has to go and headed towards Minas Tirith. Doesn't have an army. He's the king of Gondor, but he has no soldiers. And that's really what the ghost soldiers become. His first true army loyal to him. Even though he commanded the soldiers of Rohan in the Two Towers in the Battle of Helm's Deep the big battle, he informally, uh, here we go, informally commanded them. See, they could have maintained the surprise if they just had him face-to-face -face with no expression and not say anything. That would have been the good compromise solution. All right, these are called war towers. They take different forms, but they are meant to scale the walls, obviously, and then little trap doors drop down convenient that Faramir is the only one to survive, be dragged back by his horse, 
maybe Gandalf had something to do with it. See, that's what's great. The magic is so subtle that you never know when Gandalf or someone else is, you know, putting little wisps of, of magic here or there. Or maybe not. This is great. He's riding a warg, deformed guy. You know, Denethor immediately either assumes and or hopes. Oh, I like that. They try and help him. It's like the only act of orc kindness. Although, it's possible the guy did it out of reaction to help his... Or just uh, not make his commander look bad. Denethor immediately assumes he's dead. Because Denethor wants to die and he wants to be burned alive. And this is what's great. The way they cut this up, the orcs can smell the fear. They're so confident. And the fear is exactly what's going on in the city. There's actually ignorance as well. This is awesome. I'm amazed that they let this into the movie. The faces look super real, I think. Yeah, they look really real. Uh, but this is pretty brutal. Oh, God. that Lord of the Rings got away with a lot. Because it's fantasy. The way Hunger Games does. This is awesome. He's already ready to end his own life out of misery. And then this. Oh my god, it's so cool. They have formations. They got the archers where they're supposed to be. They got the infantry where they're supposed to be. Immediately blames it on someone else. Even though they're going to save his fucking ass. Or not his ass, but... Okay, so this is where it looks a little fake. The breaking of the towers. That looks like they're actually hitting bigotures, and it just doesn't look great. Um, my bigger problem, though, is each stone does so... Look at that. Each stone does so much damage that, you know, <laughs> 50 catapults should take down the whole city for a solid rock built into the mountain. But, uh, you know, it's a apocalypse movie. You gotta do it. This is great. Oh, God. Gandalf just... Okay, so this is a case of people realizing Denethor is crazy, but also Gandalf using the voice to inspire them and get their butts moving. Not very smart. You know... Unlike Rohan, which is constantly battling foes, these guys haven't seen much battle. And this is now the biggest battle in a thousand years since the third end of the Second Age. These are trebuchets. The physics behind it are pretty amazing. But you get great distance and velocity as well. So trebuchets are great at taking out, you know, scattered uh, soldiers or, or um, grouped together soldiers. This is a great shot. Those are all CGI soldiers that got hit. Pippin's double it really looks like him when he's running around. That's great. I think trebuchets are more accurate. I I'm not positive. 
<laughs> I love that a little monster there. All right, here we go. This is why you can't win any battle against the orcs, it, you know. You can take out thousands of orcs, but with these guys flying around. So these are the ring wraiths, the black riders from the first movie. And all through forward, but they have... Well, they're called Nazgul. I believe they're called fell beasts, as what they're referred to as. But they're wraiths on wings, as Gollum says. And it's pretty horrifying. Especially you had the noises. Yeah, even Pippin can't take it. This is what we would call a fear spell in roleplay games. You, um, it's it's considered in the sort of cursed category. That looks pretty good. But that they're casting magic from their voices, basically. This all looks great. I love, I mean, this just, once this started happening, I was like, okay, they really stepped it up even more for the movie. It, you know, seeing the Nazgul fly around the city and everything. You completely buy a full-on siege of this city. The city's a little small to me. Um, but it makes it more claustrophobic, which I think is good. Here it comes. Boom. See, that's so unrealistic. That's not enough force to take out a stone encampment. Like, um, these, uh, soldiers of Rohan. They have archers, but they also have soldiers who are also archers look at it one after another you're like so this is the first level of seven levels part of the reason they have seven levels is for this very eventuality he knows he's coming straight at him Oh, Gandalf with the sword and the staff. He he rarely skewers or stabs. He he's a swing guy, and he with the staff it just makes sense. He cuts him up with the sword and then knocks him over with the staff. Look at that. They're both disturbed by that sight. I can't blame them. The use of battering rams in both two towers in this movie is fantastic. In both cases, they find ways to get through... But this this little wood and steel battering ram is not going to get the jab done against the giant doors of Minas Tirith. This is a classic grand. I, I couldn't figure out what they were saying for the longest time. I finally put out the subtitles. I thought it was grant or grom or rom. I don't know. 
but it's great. They need three giant rhinoceros char- thing, uh, character things. Three rhinoceros animal things. Some bunch of huge ogres. And is like a spiritual religious figure to these bloodthirsty animals known as the orcs. Looks amazing, and when it finally this is okay, so that's where the DVDs switch. If you if you got the DVDs, um, so if you have to rewind this part, you could do that. So this part was in the yeah the regular cut. Look like pirates. That's Peter Jackson back right. I think he's the one who gets killed by uh, like. Yeah, that's Peter Jackson, <laughs> director and writer producer. Gimli's so cocky at this point. He knows what they've got. Yeah, it's lines like this that, you know, this is really the most Hollywood of all the Lord of the Rings movies. It's because it's the most epic. It's because this was the one they were really planning on locking up, you know, Academy Awards with. So there's more Hollywood stuff. You and whose army? This army. Although, uh, Legolas firing the warning shot, which Gimli hits the bow, and he kills the guy. Um, I actually think Legolas was planning on killing the guy because, you know, a little tap from Gimli's uh, axe is not going to harm Legolas' aim. Gom's getting a little nervous he won't go in. But Frodo can smell a trouble ahead. Although there's always trouble ahead with Frodo and Sam. Everything in the cave looks amazing. They created the set. It was probably only a few rooms, but they kept refilming, relighting, moving stuff around. So many people hate spiders. I have to think that with the music and then you see the spider webs, you have to be thinking, oh, God. Elijah Wood talked about in the commentaries how horribly sticky that stuff was. It was impossible to get off, so they couldn't do too many takes because it took so long to get the stuff off him, take a shower, then have to reset up all of the spider webs, and some of this stuff was done in one take. I know one part in particular I'll mention. Great cinematography. He's great at spinning the camera. The only, the only, you know subpar or mediocre still shots uh, or shots are, are, are sort of static shots. Even here, there's some dynamic movement to the camera. You really got to go handheld at this point. It's so easy to make it look a little handheld, still have full control. 
So hopefully you figured it. Okay, now you figured it out, even if you never read the books or knew what was going to happen. This is a great all-time scene. If I was going to nominate Sean Astin for a supporting actor award, he actually did that. Not that, but that. He did the first bit of fall, and then they actually dropped him because they wanted it to look real, so he kept having to fall in his face. Great pullback shot of the Lembus bread. He puts it together. He probably should have put it together already. But this is just fit. Sam is a very physical, earthly, earthy guy. What he can t smell and taste and touch, and now he's touching it. Not tasting yet. I guess he's not hungry at this point. Look at that. Oh, God. It's the stairs of Kirith Ungol. So good. This part, it's hard to watch um, and sort of many rewatches. Not because it's not good. It's expertly executed and acted and filmed. But I don't even mind spiders, but I hate spider webs. I'm more horrified by them than her. See, this is funny because... You know, he finally uses Galadriel's light. And he's speaking Elvish, which is great that he knows Elvish from Bilbo. They, oh, look, you don't even see anything. Oh, they blended it so well. You barely see it. But the funny thing is it knocks the light out of his hand almost immediately. And so it really didn't serve a big purpose. That will serve a purpose later when Frodo gets his ass saved by his best friend who he has alienated but is... Too loyal to give up. We see that Frodo has some fighting ability. We definitely see that Sam has crazy fighting ability. Mostly just out of sheer boldness and desperation. And being too dumb to know that his chances are low. Or too stubborn. That's a great shot into the mouth. All the creatures, like the, the sea monster in Fellowship. It just looks so good. Now, unlike the sea monster in Fellowship, which was actual, was working for Saruman and wanted to get the ring, this thing is just hungry. So this is horrifying. Okay, so I believe they did this either in one set or in a very small amount of sets and in a single film shot, basically, because this was so complicated to do. Now, of course, you can mix up shots to to sort of set the timeline of how long it takes to get through it. This is the first time we've seen Frodo really desperately fighting since he got stabbed in Weathertop. I mean, he fought in the war, in the battle in um he fought in the battle of uh Khazad-dûm with the orcs and the ogre where they think he's dead he's wearing the special mithril armor this is a great shot i love that he rolls into this area and then oh man you think he's safe 
But this is important for Frodo because Sam does save him and then he never distrusts Sam again. And this is a preview of the final battle. It's nice that they get a sense of each other from a fighting perspective. As Seraph says in uh, Matrix Reloaded, Matrix Reloaded, you do not truly know a man until you fight him. Even now, uh, Frodo is just so, just so caught up in the in the lies. Yeah, he realizes they're connected through the ring. He he doesn't want to become Gollum. He's already starting to head there a little bit. This is great. The change of emotion. I think even a casual watcher would n not think that he died there, or at least think there's a good chance he'd be back. Obviously, those of us who read the books <laughs> know that that is a temporary setback for Gollum. Um, and actually allows him to regroup and meet up with them at a point they don't see coming much later. I'm so sorry, Sam. I'm so sorry. The faintly um, kind of gay relationship between him and Sam has been well remarked upon, both about the books and the movies. It's more visceral with the movies. Now, there's no kissing or much physical contact, but there's a lot of sweet talk, and they do love each other. Um, I think it's one of those bromances, you know, the word bromances didn't really exist or the concept did it in Tolkien's time, but I think they just have a very, very close bromance, and I think it's beautiful that there can be some ambiguity from a sexual standpoint in this day and age, and we can just live with that. Here's Galadriel again, helping him. <laughs> and again, only a temporary respite of the horror that is about to hit him. I think they break up the scene, though. I would have done it right here, just for shock value. This must have been so... All these gathering the forces scenes. Oh, my God. This is the, I can't believe they didn't think that Eowyn should not take her helmet off, and neither should Mary. I mean, they could have at least put them more to the side. It's just a stupid admission. But, you know, I want to see them emote, and so I, I, many who love you, he loves her, she loves Aragorn, none of them ever say it directly. This is the whole, there is always hope. They don't need this scene. They've already sold their relationship, and then when they go into battle, they sell it even more. Ugh, I can't wait for Eowyn to fight. She's so fucking badass.
I think I'm going to do a uh, podcast about sort of my top 10 kick-ass uh, female characters since, you know, 2000 or so. It would be her and Trinity and um, uh, Gina Torres on Firefly, Zoe, uh, Black Widow, a bunch of others, Sarah Connor... And all of them manage to be feminine, but extremely brave and tough, often tougher than the men. This is great. Now they're just throwing fire, which, you know, they just smartly decided not to set the city fully on fire, which would make no sense because it's all stone. So Grunt looks even better at night, as most things do, because of the flames. Look at that. I wonder how they keep that lit. There must be a lot of lighter fluid in there. <laughs> or just a lot of uh, wet, dense, wet wood. Yeah, because of the armor, it makes the soldiers look stiff. It doesn't look quite as good as when the, the Rohirrim are fighting. So, okay, so this is a little speech he's giving here. Uh, this was restored in the extended version. In the um, This is his sort of pagan rights thing. Uh, in the original, it, it, we saw this. We saw Mary watching this procession but not hearing anything. And here it is. Gondor is lost, but there's a flower. And that flower is Aragorn. And whatever Aragorn's fate holds for him. See, it's funny, because before he got knocked out by Gandalf, he said, Fly, you fools, fly. But now with Faramir and his, you know, dementia reaching a new level, he just... Is nihilistic and just say everyone just we're all gonna die so just die. This room is great. This is also straight out of a role playing game, or you know like some old Spanish or Italian architecture. The amount of sets they designed and everything looks so real. We know it's not rock, but it freaking looks like rock. Great shot. You know it's coming down. I don't know why they can't brace it more, but maybe it's just not even worth it. Great shot. See, that's a blend. That's a green screen shot. Oh, look at that. I love how they slow motion it. At first, I didn't like that effect, but if you follow the speed of it, the way the uh, wall breaks and the fire comes through, and if that doesn't sell it, you got it right there. Yeah, Gandalf's really the inspirational leader at this point. Oh, you gotta have some trolls, probably mountain trolls, if I had to guess. Nerd alert. So, okay, this is our real fighting. But when the trolls start just smashing people around, mostly that's, that's CGI, that's CGI. When I say CGI, the soldiers are... 
That's really hard to see. I watched that so many times. I'm like, why does he grab his neck? It looks like he slashes down, but actually Gandalf very quickly slashes up at the throat, and it's brilliant. So Galadriel has now helped him twice, and you think he's got to figure it out. Would have been an interesting choice to not show the spider come out and just have him get smacked. But this is, yeah, I mean, you got to do this shot. It's so good. It's such a large creature because it's an insect. It just is so quiet. I, I don't know how they did the camera on this. If they had a guy on a thing. The silence of it is what sells everything. Every place he looks is different except the place where he should be looking. Oh, God. Elijah Wood is, is really talented at suffering uh, in so many ways. It's like you are just going to be feeling worse and worse and worse as it goes along. This looks super good to me still. And they smartly wrap his face early on. Even though it's CGI. Look at that close up. I mean, the spider looks a little two and a half dimensional. Oh, this is great. Yeah. Sam's got the light. He knows how to use it. I don't know how Sam knows how to use it. Maybe Frodo explained it to him. Great shot of running up with Sam. This is so hard to do. Hit the leg. Move it out of the way. The way this this is filmed amazingly. I saw the behind the scenes on this. They they this is all CGI there. This is real I mean partially real. Like how it kicks him in the face. Kicks her in the face. So so hideous. It's all about the eyes. It's lucky he got out of that. He's still carrying his pots and pads. Should have left the. Oh, right in the eye. And you're going up. Oh, he beat it. He beat it. Sam knows it's not over. Tried to go for the for the gusto there. Those elvish swords continue to look amazing. I, I never tire of seeing them. I never would have wanted the Braveheart sword if I had known I could get an elvish sword from Lord of the Rings. Oh, the little uh, stinger is just disgusting. And it's on the back of the body, but it, it's it's hard to tell what's... There we go. Got to get that sword at the right time and in the right place. Really looks good. I mean, the color almost detracts from the texture a little bit, but this, like this right here looks amazing.
I like that. Don't go where I can't follow. He's a follower. And even though he ends up being the stronger one, he's, his life still revolves around Frodo. Always has, and to a certain extent, always will. That's hard to do. Sit there, <laughs> looking dead with your eyes open. This is great. They haven't really used the glowing um, sword sting that Bilbo gave to Frodo and glows when orcs are near. It's a great utilization of it. And I like how it's only a faint glow, because if it was a bright glow, it could give away your position and ruin the whole point. I don't blame Sam for not thinking of it, because he does seem dead. I'm not sure why he wouldn't remove him out of the way. Look how great these practical orcs look. I know the makeup takes like six hours per orc, but it's just so much cooler and scarier. The faces... The CGI in The Hobbit is nowhere near this. I can't believe Peter Jackson didn't learn his own lesson. I think they were just lazy. Might even be cheaper to do CGI at this point. Certainly less time consuming from an actor standpoint. You can just do it all in the studio. At their leisure. No acting schedules. No callbacks. Another great shot of the palace at the top of Minas Tirith. Never seen Pippin angry before. Don't want to see Pippin angry. Alright, so here's a great stunt here that I saw in the behind the scenes. He throws the body double, and then Pippin is right there. You can actually just see the body double behind Pippin. So it looks like he throws Pippin, but he threw the body double. Now, of course, they've moved the body double out of the way. See, this is great. Seeing the Hobbit in the crowd, you can do a lot of great camera work. Oh, See, it's just like with every blow, it's destroying entire structures. You know, I, I don't really know. Why even invade? Just keep firing flaming cannonballs. See, they haven't even sent the main uh, the main troops yet. This looks great. The numbers are so much bigger than Helm's Deep, but it just looks real. I love the way the camera... I don't know how they do this. They, that, that's a huge set they just went through. And then it was green screen. Oh, I love the devil-looking guy biting him. It's so horrifying. This is the most brutal in a lot of ways. I mean, a lot of people died in Helm's Deep in Two Towers, but just the the viciousness of the orcs and the wargs. 
I always wonder what Gandalf was doing there with his staff up in the air. <laughs> Casting a spell that we don't get to say as usual. See, this is interesting. I think this happens in the book. Please forgive me. Oh, here it is. This was cut. One of the two scenes that you absolutely cannot cut. Oh, the flaming sword is so amazing. I can't believe they cut this out. And then it... Oh! Just breaks. This is awesome. Shows the limits of Gandalf's power. Can't take on the Witch King. Looks so real. It almost looks animatronic. Like uh, the Jurassic Park days. Gandalf at that moment believes it to be true. He's going to die. So you'd think maybe he'd take the time to finish off Gandalf first, but I don't think he really respects Gandalf. The commander is the first to notice that. Oh, just gives you chills. Gives you chills in the book, too. It's so fitting that after suffering their almost near annihilation that the men and some women of Rohan would ride to the aid of those who really haven't been particularly nice to them in quite a while. Oh, my God. That's exactly... I mean, this is what fantasy is right here. This is what makes fantasy great. So many human themes, but... You know, 20,000 orcs invading Minas Tirith. Okay, here's Aomer. So they have the basics of strategy. <gasps> uh, soldiers in front, archers behind. That's uh, modern, or, sorry, that's medieval warfare 101 right there. Uh, but if you've ever played Warcraft, it's harder to pull off than you think. But that's just because you're using a mouse. So Aomer takes one side. He takes the middle. And then some other commander goes right. See, this is a great speech. This is better than the Aragorn speech. He does a great job. Okay, so... The guy who plays Theoden is left a lefty, but he really wanted to do this. This was his idea. This was his idea, and he had to do it with his offhand, his right hand, and they had to film it from that angle because that's how they were filming everything. So that's impressive and just cool. It's like a fist bump with spears and swords. The Viking death cheer. Yes, here we go. It's probably the best CGI battle effect ever for this scale. So okay, so as they, as you know, as they ride towards the orcs, 
you're going to see a bunch of them get picked off by arrows from the from the orcs and goblins. All of them are CGI, but you don't really know till it hits because they look so good. But if you just see the way they flip, just watch. So they to leave spaces actually in their writing. It looks like it's you know they to leave spaces for the CGI characters to be. Okay, so those are all CGI characters. CGI. Yeah, when the subtitles it says death is what they say. I I always just thought they were like ah. Oh, I love that look of fear. See, they're so outnumbered, but when you get horses coming down a hill full charge, oh, Aobar with a spear there, hard to see. He improv that, flipping it up in the air. I mean, yeah, just the force of these battle horses, and they have armor too. Just, I mean, this looks so real. This just looks real. All Okay, so all these orcs are CGI. The riders are real. The orcs they're running over are CGI. And then they mix in some actual, oh, here, here he is. So, you know, you can tell this is CGI 12 years later, but the physics of it looks so great. I, you know, as long as it looks cool and it feels and sounds real, that's the important thing. You can't get, you know, 20,000 people, <laughs> real people to do that in real life. It's impossible. But that's what it would look like. With with true heavy cavalry. So, anyways, I was saying earlier, it's interesting decision that Gandalf would leave the battle for this. The importance of one man, Faramir, but it's because Aragorn is going to be king, but Faramir is going to be very important in the new regime should it come to pass. I have to think that's why Gandalf is doing this. I love the soldiers like, what? Take my spear. That's great. Uh, here it is. Pippin's hero moment. He really sells how, you know, the guy's twice his weight, at least with the armor. That's a cool little, yeah. This is totally fake, but it's like, uh, it feels like a Western right there with the horse kicking him. But it's a cool shot. I wonder how much real fire is there. If any. This is obviously not real, but he certainly looked like he was getting toasted before. Yep. Son of Ecthelion. That's the Tower of Ecthelion. Fireball and just another death. It's a crazy old man with too much power. There's a lot of this. There's a lot of just shots of, yeah, this, you know. You don't see them actually hitting anyone. But they haven't, uh, see, they have enough of those. Uh, it works. 
Like, immediately after he says, make safe the city. It's like, oh, no. That helmet is amazing. So uh, so's Aomer's for a different reason. His with the horse hair. So, when I said this is the coolest, you know, big army medieval fantasy fight scene ever, I'm including this because while the riding across the orcs and destroying all them was cool, this is so hard to film. Again, any soldiers that get hit, like, violently are CGI. But if you watch the behind the scenes on this, how complicated this choreography was, because they just had to imagine that these oliphants were there. What do they got? Four tusks and two trunks? They really sell the cavalry. Feels, oh man, look at the camera. Here we go, and boom, all CGI. Looks phenomenal. I mean, this is exactly what you'd do if you were with the Oliphants. So, you know, part of strategy in warfare is matchups, right? Fighter jets that have air-to-air -air missiles are meant to fight other fighter jets. Some have bombs for ground targets. Some fly close to the ground for certain strategic reasons, but then are liable to be taken out. Medieval warfare, it's the same thing. The infantry of the orcs really never stood a chance against the, the heavy cavalry, but the elephants just... Uh, and I love the chains between the tusks that sort of work as a tripwire. This is great. I already love Aimer at this point when I'm watching it, and I'm, you just forget how many small heroic moments he has. This looks great, I think. Yeah, that's a green screen, but it looks good. I love how <laughs> twisted. Very Mad Max, actually, those characters. The war pain and the weird piercings and stuff. And this is the weakness when you have these giant animals that are barely under control. That's going to happen, and now they're going to have trouble getting up. Okay, so... The two of them taking down the Oliphant is awesome. She takes another sword. Amazing how she sets this up. She has to go through so many elephants, Oliphants, and one, and two, cuts off the knees. So cool. This is a great shot. And this is exactly what warfare is like. Just improvising on the fly. Mary! Mary! The war paint of the elephants, like, it's so unrealistic, but it just looks awesome. She sees that. Uncle Theo is in trouble. He knows. Or he suspects. He knows her fighting style. 
Yeah, Mary kicks total ass here. So these stunt doubles that he's fighting are just huge guys. You know, they're like s seven feet tall. So, okay, that's a, that's Mary's stunt double. Still playing it well. They add, they they actually added a, a lot of fighting to this part of the fight, and this is another... It makes it a much cooler fight when they extend it, her little thing with him. This whole little subplot of her trying to take down or avoid the uh, de deformed or captain. I love this. It's like, yeah, just give a troll a hammer. So here's the Christian moment. And as I mentioned before, Tolkien went out of his way to not make this a religious parable. Now, of course, you have elements from Christianity, but nothing theological. And this is very much a description of heaven. It is also a manipulation by Gandalf. Heaven may or may not look like this, but he's trying to give Pippin courage in case they survive this. And if they don't survive, that he ends with a beautiful image of where he's going. I need to go back to the, the Silmarillion and stuff to see what exactly he's referring to. Or just his description of uh, Across the Sea. In fact, he might just be talking about himself. I'm going to this place here to... I like that little nod there. It's like, all right, here we go. Back to the Oliphants. Oh, my God. This stuff is so cool. I do not know how they filmed this. See, this is a mistake for him because uh, uh, the Nazgul probably would have found him anyways. He just doesn't move. It's brutal. He gets. It's not clear unless you look closely, but he bites him essentially in the head. Or at least puts his head in the mouth and flings him. Feast on his flesh. This is so great in the book. They must have been so pumped to make this happen. I mean, what 14-year-old girl is not... I, I mean, I, I was freaking out. Everyone loves this. But if I'm a 14-year-old girl and I'm watching this movie with all these men and she kills the big bad guy and the mount of the big bad guy. Okay, folks, this is called a morning star. I referenced this in the Matrix Reloaded podcast. But it's the biggest and ugliest and most horrifying-looking morning star ever. I don't know how they filmed this. Must just be made of styrofoam, but it looks so heavy and menacing. Vicious. Oh, there we go. In the arm. Oh. You know, I, I do like epic movies where they break up the various scenes 
and, you know, spend 20 minutes on one, then go to another. You know, most epic movies do it this way where they cut it up, but because the events are so concurrent everywhere to build the tension, I get it. Yeah, I love he has a skull on top of his head. See, this is great, because they don't have to do any fighting here. They could just let these guys do all the fighting, but they just can't help themselves. Three of them are warriors and are not going to stop fighting until this war is over. You know, I don't really like how the ghosts just sort of roll over them. You don't really see them kill the, the orcs. Right, this is the whole no man can kill me, I am no man. You know, cheesy line, but so perfect. And Mary gets involved, the elf. So some people say, you know, if this guy's so powerful, what? why did he fall so easily? It's an elf knife, that's a magical elf knife. I love that you stab the face that you can't say. Because it, it manages to be so brutal without, you know, flirting with rated R type violence, I guess. And this is awesome. And, and the way he is sort of time shifting, no, everyone around is still... Okay, so this is all added. I, again, you can't take this out. You know, all this stuff got taken out. And when you watch it in extended version and, you know, say you catch this part on TV... With the regular version, it's just the battle is stakes are so much higher. I know it's long, but it's the freaking Lord of the Rings Return of the King. The Battle of Pelennor Fields. Led Zeppelin wrote a song about this. The Battle of Evermore on their fourth album. This is great. Uh, Aragorn cuts his arm off. It Gimli and him just destroy the guy. It, this is what's great about Aragorn. I talk about great leaders like Captain America, John Connor. You have to be a great tactician that can sum up a situation immediately, know what your personnel is and how to use them. And for whatever reason, Aragorn put it together that Legolas could maneuver away to take down not only an Oliphant, but everyone on the Oliphant. He's still counting, of course, the running gag. Some people think, well, it's possible some people think the running gag of him and Gimli constantly counting deaths is either corny or, you know, a little dark or both. That's how it is in the books, folks, and that's part of their relationship. They bond over battle. This is, in a weird way, that they're... Friendship and this is great. Looks to this. Okay, one last thing to do. Is it two hours or three? I think it's three. Three hours, and then the surfboard thing, which he does in two towers. I love it. You gotta do it. <laughs> that got big laughs in the theater, from what I can remember. It still only counts as one. Oh, this is great. Just breaks the guy's neck. Took a while for the ghosts to do their thing, but, you know, I love the, even though this is just way too convenient, I love the cleansing nature of this, because 
even when you won the war on the field, there's still going to be hundreds or thousands of orcs in the city. Someone's got to deal with them, and they're the only ones who can. So this is an example of a great death scene and amazing chemistry between two people that goes on a little too long. But because Theoden has had such a great character arc where he's really redeemed himself from his past mistakes... Yeah, the whole, I'm going to save you, you already did. But because I love Eowyn so much, and it was important that they highlight her character, I am totally cool with the longer speech because it's well executed and just the array of emotional responses she has. So, so touching and so convincing. Just like that. Does he say her name one more time? But it's, it, if you can only see one face at his moment of death, that's the one. And the aftermath. It's great about the aftermath. Well, they extend these scenes. Um, there's a whole subplot from this about Eowyn being near death and needing to be healed by Aragorn. They cut that out of the movie. It's in the book. Works okay in the movie. But just Eomar's reaction to his sister when he thinks she's dead or close to dead. Yeah, at least they had Gimli say that what we're all thinking, which is, let's keep these guys in our fight for Bordor. But, you know, the reality is, Aragorn is not someone to go back on his promises, no matter what. And furthermore, I think they're sort of geographically tied to Gondor, is my impression. And that if you keep them around against their will too long, then maybe things flip again in not so good direction. Up, oh. Gandalf gives him the nod as king. This is it. Uh, this is the scene they cut. I Carl Urban just loses his freaking mind. And this is again the brother sister dynamic I love so much because I can relate to it. And this is exactly how I would respond. Ugh. Just look at his face. I mean, he totally sells that and got cut. But the thing is, when you hear the actors on the various commentaries, none of them are particularly bitter about scenes being cut because they know that this movie is going to live through DVDs. And I'm guessing that a very 
large minority, at least, of DVD owners have the extended edition. And so, you know, there's tens of millions of people. So this whole scene is in the book, Houses of the Healing, it's called. Um, With the music and the whole thing, it's a little much. And again, Aragorn is completely prioritizing um, Eowyn, who is of nobility. Now, maybe he's also healing other people. This is so over the top, squeezing the water. And yet again, you know, just acting in a way that's just going to make her fall more in love with him. Although I suppose she's maybe moved on. Oh, look at Aomer. See, that's why I'm cool with this scene, even though it's not necessary. But from a character standpoint, I think it's necessary. Because Eowyn and Aomer, in some ways, are the true heroes. Because they're caught up in something that's bigger than them. But they're always doing the right thing. And it's great because they're nobility, but they're not kings and queens. Makes it cooler that Theoden's their uncle and not their dad. And, you know, some people complain that these two kind of fall for each other a little quickly. But that's how it happens in the book. Actually, it happens quicker than this. This is a great scene. So, I believe... Oh, God. I was going to say, I think that elephant is a practical model. But looking at it now, I can't tell if they really built that. It certainly looks like it's there. Great texture. Uh, speaking of uh, bromances, they have their own bromance. It'd be interesting to see if in the Shire, where the hobbits are from, that bromances are a regular thing. That, you know, people have different sexuality, but even straight guys have little crushes on other straight guys that are their buddies. Um, or whether it's just because those two have spent so much time with just the two of them. Same with Sam and Frodo. Okay, so this part in the book is amazing, and they totally nail it in the movie. And again, I, I don't know the exact correlation, but this is how it feels, especially when Sam comes to the rescue is really how it felt. Orc's not very smart, twisting things around. It's a sword buckle, people. It's not that complicated. Um, and again, you know, we've sort of been hinted that there are divisions within the groups of orcs. I think that's an Urukai on the right, and that's a regular orc on the left. And, you know, it's this ridiculous fight between the orc groups that allows Sam to do what he needs to do. But it's such great world building that I don't even care. Yeah, the Urukai is manufactured by Saruman in the first movie. Not to be trifled with. I like this. Now, the level to which they're cannibals is interesting. They certainly, uh, there's some great orc face stuff going on here. I like how this, look at this guy. Oh, the jump kick. It's almost sad when he dies. Here we go. Wait till, there's a, wait till this group enters. 
Oh, he hits up with a drumstick. I don't I remember that. So, anyway, uh, look at this. Oh, I love that. He's just like, war! So, in, in the two towers, they eat an orc. Uh, here, they just seem to be wanting to kill each other. Oh, my God, that's brutal. So, the Urukais, which were genetically modified even further by Saruman to be superior, are bigger and faster and stronger. So, I don't think the regular orcs stand much of a chance at this fight. Um, sort of a callback to the gargoyles at uh, Minas Morgul, the place with the giant laser beam that went into the sky where the armies came out from. You know, it would make sense that there would be minimal security at this tower because, you know, they're planning the war. I, I don't think they would suspect that a couple hobbits could infiltrate a place like this. So, at this point in the book, Sam, I believe, is wearing the ring. I can't remember if he fights them or just runs past them. It's some more Hollywood here. And now, that one's my old gaffer. His gaffer, which I never am sure of is his dad or granddad. I think it's his dad. So, that's important that one of the orcs gets out with the... um. Uh, with Frodo's armor, the Mithril armor. Again, something that only pays off in the extended version, but that's why we were watching it. There's really like five or six payoffs that they set up in the version that made it to the movie, but don't pay off any of them. Great image glowing you know who it is yeah a lot of skewering of orcs okay so here's the part where sam reveals he has the ring but as I mentioned, the scenario here actually takes both sides of the spectrum opposite to this. In the book, he wears the ring, which would seemingly make him more addicted to it. I guess what I'm saying is this little bit here where he holds it back from Frodo would make more sense if he'd actually worn the ring. But under this scenario where he's just carrying the ring, it doesn't really make sense. And in the book, even though he wore it, he's so strong and so grounded and so simple that he just gives it right back to Frodo. Uh, you know, I think it was a good idea to play this up for dramatic effect because we needed to be reintroduced to just the... Uh, I mean, look, he looks like Gollum right there. You know, they really want to emphasize that it's killing Frodo and it would just kill Sam too. 
When he says, it will destroy you, he's also referring to himself. This is great. Uh, the beak on Frodo's helmet was apparently the source of much um, making fun of and hilarity among the cast. So there's a whole section coming up with a trying to get through the lines they took out of the movie. That's more great world building and adventure. So we're at the three uh, hour mark, or so we're three quarters there. So we have an hour to, oh, there's the eye. Such an awesome image. I love that they just projected it at the top of the tower. I never imagined that being the case in the book from a literal standpoint. So they have to get to the mountain, and Aragorn and company need to figure out how to help. Here we go. It's interesting that Gandalf sort of could feel him up until now. Exactly. Aomer is on the council, as he should be. Eowyn would be there as well if she were healthy. Same with... Uh, uh. Again, the numbers, hard to know where they come from. Still, sounds like a lot in, in old school. Yeah, it's weird that Gandalf would now think all of a sudden they send him to his death. Maybe just because he can't see him. So here's the whole stall stalling tactic that is, you know, we see in big epic sci-fi action fantasy movies. Okay. So they say he's not gonna. Sauron's not gonna fall for it. You know they say, you know, great plan, man, but Sauron's not gonna fall for it. And then they skip why Sauron falls for it. This is great. Chance of success. What are we waiting for? Here, Sarn's back to trap. Oh, I think you will. And then, okay. So in, in the theatrical movie, they're immediately riding towards the Black Gate of Mordor. And they don't explain why. This is the greatest deleted scene of all time. Both in how it's filmed, in its coolness factor... But also, it really detracted, for me, from the theatrical version once I saw this. Because this is where he says, I am the king, fuck you, come and get me. So you can hold it. The sword is... Uh, we get to see Sauron. I love real, the real embodied Sauron. And then he finds his deepest fears. He's watching 
R-O-N. This is great, by the way. You think, yeah, you think the glove's gonna shatter the orb, but his necklace does. Now he's not wearing it. And see, now it's a whole new level of meaning that's just not there. You take out that scene. I don't get it. I don't get it. The scene where Gandalf's staff is broken with the flaming sword, that should be in, and this scene that we just saw really should be in, and then there's one more at the Black Gate that they cut out. That's great. That should be in. We'll get there. Okay, so these are definitely lines from the book, but again, it's hard to know whom and when and where the words are spoken. In the theatrical version, it's just that look that they have. And then they're at the wedding, standing next to each other. You really don't need this part. But I appreciate that they're doing this, because this is how it happens in the book. They've just fallen in love, and it's not really explained. And, you know, I don't think Tolkien knew how to write for female characters, or at least about them, in terms of relationships. But he nails Aon. No luck. Sam is still upbeat. See, this is great. This is all cut out. But just because of the look of the orcs and their <laughs> sort of improvised but brilliant plan to fight each other to get the attention away from them. It's hard to know what the orcs' motivations are. I mean, their vocabulary is decent. Their fighting skills, good. Um, again, cannibalism. I guess they like eating humans. You know, some skins there of some animals. They're obviously controlled by Sauron because as soon as Sauron's destroyed. Oh, this is great. This just sells the brutality of the war and the whole situation. That's a great look for Aragorn. Actually, is the necklace still there? Maybe he just dreamed that it broke. Always love war drums, especially for bad guys. Good guys should be bagpipes. <laughs> bad guys, war drums. And Spackshot. Doing those teeth proth uh, prosthetics is very difficult. This guy's great. He opens his eye and it's white. It's so scary. Yeah, I like that it's like physically damaging his neck, the chain, because of the weight. Here we go. Oh, that looks so awesome.
It's pretty much the only plan they had because they know that they've both seen because uh, the previous scene where the orcs were all fighting each other in the tower where Frodo was being held that you know it doesn't take much for orcs to start fighting so maybe they could start a fight. Yep, see. It's great that Frodo comes up with the plan. I mean, under normal circumstances, he obviously would be the one. He's much smarter than Sam. Um, but the fact that in his, you know, ruined state, almost lost his mind at this point, he's still able to come up with the plan. And Sam follows along. This is an amazing shot. Everything in Mordor, for the most part, looks super real. Um, I really buy that that's Mount Doom back there. And what's great about Mount Doom is... It, it's probably a painting. There's not a lot of movement of the smoke and the fire. And usually those, you know, sort of hand-drawn backdrops can look a little fake. But the color blending and the three-dimensionality are so convincing. And it actually looks creepier that it's not just, you know, fire and smoke uh, pluming out constantly. And they sell it with all these smaller fires sort of on the ground. You see Sauron's eye. This is the shot right here. That's it. Mount Doom. Sauron's tower and his eye. You completely believe you're in Mordor. Uh, uh, they actually got rid of everything from before um, getting almost captured by the orcs uh, up until now. Um, it was... Uh, reinserted for the extended edition. They they don't wear these masks very long in uh, in the original cut, but you can see that any sort of physical weight is just too much for Frodo at this point. And I like that Sam is now in full, almost like leader mode or at least inspirational mode. He's often comforting Frodo, sort of enabling Frodo's misery a little bit he thinks he's helping him but now he knows that they can only get there if you know he pushes Frodo more than he would like to and this is a somewhat callback to the inserted scene earlier where they saw the head of the the giant stone st statue head of a king on the ground with a ring of flowers and the sun comes out briefly moment of beauty and then goes away. Here they can see a star or maybe a planet. Frodo is just, he can't see anything. Can't feel anything. He's pretty much dead. I mean, his heart's beating and he can move one leg after the other. Look at this. Just so seamless. I don't know why more movies can't pull this off. They are totally in Mordor. And then the contrast with the you know, the sun on the helmets and the shields of, of these amazing soldiers. This all looks great. The design of the Gondor um, uh, uniforms and armor and helmets and shields and swords is super fantasy, super medieval. But, you know, like with anything that's super fantasy, it comes from Tolkien. And this really captures it. Game of Thrones... As much money and time as they spend on their costumes has nothing on uh, the Gondorian army, among other things. I love that he wastes the last little bit of water. Now, Frodo's, it, this flips now because Frodo's hoping for a return journey, or at least trying to comfort Sam. I think Frodo doesn't believe it. He's trying to keep Sam's spirits up, but Sam is at a whole new level now, and they, they're not going to make it home at least not on their own. 
and now they're on the same page. And this is and now Sam is is Frodo's equal. And even as I said before, kind of the inspirational leader that Frodo needs. He's not just a servant or a gardener or bodyguard or whatever. Great shot of the Black Gate. Again, looks exactly what I would have thought reading the book. I like that that Frodo's like seeing spirits here that he's like you know kind of brushing away as he stumbles more great slow motion they do use a lot of slow motion in lord of the rings it can be corny but the actual uh sort of mechanics of the filming uh oh here it is the searchlight of sauron's eye i love this concept i, I, I again I, I can't remember if they did uh if tolkien wrote this specifically in the book that it basically acted like a giant lighthouse or searchlight that we know Sauron can see long distances through magical means but that he also you know can can see things in a more physical way within his own lands of Mordor um and our heroes see the light move and they know what it means now they got to draw out Sauron's forces and there's only one man that can do it, and that is Aragorn, the heir of Elendil, with his sword Narsil, flame of the west. It looks like Sauron would see them, but and he's holding he's holding uh the the spotlight on Frodo, but The arrival of Aragorn distracts him just long enough for, for Frodo and Sam to make their, their final um, run to the mountain, which was the plan the whole time. I love that Amor is with the main group. Amor is now officially, uh, well, maybe not officially, but he is and will be the king of Rohan now that his uncle has died and since uncle has no living heir. So this is the scene that they cut out of the movie. This is in those four or five that I just can't believe they got rid of. This character and actor is so creepy and, you know, the horse doesn't even look like a, a human horse, if you will. It's like another, oh, look, it's all mouth. It doesn't even have eyes that we can see. I love that look. Aragorn is skeptical. But, you know, w w with the w with the threats from this guy who's representing the faithless and accursed Sauron, they really convey that you know, if if the good guy's hope was at an all-time low leading up to this final battle, uh, then this guy is trying to, to destroy whatever hope is left by lying that they've killed Frodo and they he, that he can prove it because he has a suit of armor. How else would he get it? Because, you know, it's hard to imagine Frodo would get caught in Mordor and escape And this guy is lying, but he's lying through half-truths. And that's always the most convincing lies. There's just enough truth in it for the lie to sell, even to Gandalf. And talk about how much pain he endured, which, of course, he is enduring pain, but not what they think, not torture. And once again, Gandalf loses faith here. There's one guy that doesn't. 
Vigo Mortensen. The ladies love him. Hearing the behind the scenes is hilarious. Everyone from the actresses. Oh, here we go. And that's it. That, you know, I, maybe they didn't want the extra decapitation. No, they've had decapitations in the movie, in the original that was right in the PG-13 rating. I like that he says, I don't believe it. And then he says, I will not believe it. So even he's not sure. But, you know, again... Like Morpheus in the Matrix, he has to continually convey belief and faith and hope, even if he is a little unsure. And you see that in a lot of movies. The leaders have to be the ones who believe, even if they're not, you know, fully on board with what they're saying to inspire the troops. Here we see them moving back. The troops are already scared. Um, it's worked. The eye is now on Aragorn. Why Sauron thinks Aragorn has a possibility of defeating him um, is a miscalculation, obviously, because they're getting their ass kicked up until the ring is destroyed. But from Sauron's mind, the only person who even partially defeated him was Aragorn's distant ancestor, the last king of Gondor. And he was the one who cut the ring from Sauron's finger and destroyed Sauron in the end of the Second Age. This is the end of the Third Age. So this is the Aragorn speech. And, you know, I've sort of criticized it for being mediocre before other podcasts. But I really don't mind because Aragorn isn't the speech-giving type guy. And you can tell that he's having to force this speech because he's a leader by example, not a leader by words. He doesn't have the gift of gab that Morpheus has, but he's really trying to be the king that they want. But what sells it is not the speech, but that he charges into battle without his horse. Maybe he does with his horse. God, this looks good. They, they said that the, the horse rearing there was not totally planned and somehow responded to Aragorn's energy and intensity and movement, and they were worried the horse was going to knock him off and, and, and you know kick him or something, but it just looks amazing. This is great. This is exactly what you would do if your army was ten times the size of the other army. You just circle them and wait. And this is where the cutting back and forth really pays off. Before, it was just a story device to say, okay, we'll take a break from this story, we'll go to the Frodo story, we'll go back to the Aragorn story, now we'll go to the Mary story, etc. But you need this back and forth cutting to show the simultaneity of what is going on. And while, again, like in many such movies like Star Wars, Matrix, and others, the giant battle is actually a distraction and or a stalling tactic that is the case here but what i like is you know they very much know this is a stalling tactic and they know that frodo must still be alive or, or there's a chance because if he were dead and sauron had the ring the world would already be destroyed hey omar that's about as scared as aober <laughs> gets carl urban is uh, pretty much a badass. It sucks that Faramir and Eowyn can't fight in the final battle, but I don't believe they do in the book. And Eowyn already had her great moment, and she's going to um, end up marrying Faramir, who will be the right-hand man to 
Aragorn when he is king, Elisar, Faramir will be his, you know, right-hand man, um, or just sort of a, a, a lord of, you know, a large port of, uh, portion of the kingdom, and Eowyn will lead and rule with Faramir, uniting the kingdoms of Rohan and Gondor. They don't really talk about that in the movie at all. Um, they might talk about it in the in the book, but if you've read the book a couple times and seen the movies, you can sort of put together how politically expedient the whole thing is and how it would make sense for future threats for the two kingdoms to, if not be, you know, unified in a, in a fully political sense, at least have a much stronger alliance they've ever had before. Again, very corny Hollywood moment talking about being naked in the fields and strawberries and cream, a lot of sexual overtones here, but these two just know how to play. I talked about lack of visual contact, you know, here he's cradling and hugging Frodo, but this is purely out of friendship. It is a bromance, but it's not a sexual one, and even if it were, you know, who cares? That would be great if Tolkien was onto that. Now, as a Catholic writer, as a Catholic English writer in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, my guess is that homosexuality would not be on his mind. But this is, see, this is where it sells. He, Frodo can't see anything, even Sam. He just sees the wheel of fire, as he calls him. He, he, Sauron is in his eyes and his mind's eye, and this is when Sam gets pissed. This is, Sam wants to save the world, but just as much he wants to save Frodo. Even though he thinks they're both going to die, at least he can maybe help save Frodo's soul by doing this incredibly, incredibly heroic and miraculous act. Uh, Sean, this is really Sean Astin carrying uh, Elijah Wood at times, or a double of Elijah Wood, and, you know, he's... It's funny because they had to make Sam a little plumpy because that's how he is in the book, but he had to be strong. He works outdoors. We know that. He's a great fighter. And so we see that he's actually, you know, a, a, a strong dude. And his will. Oh, this is great. I love this. So the subtitles say Sauron whispering indistinctly, but he's really saying, Elisar. There it is. Which is Aragorn's true name, and the name he will adopt when he becomes king. Him and Gandalf exchange moments. Oh, look at Figo, he's crying for Frodo. Look how big that sword is, gotta love it. And I love that Pippin and Merry are the second two to go, because the hobbits are the bravest when it comes down to it, especially when it involves their friends. Um, you know, I kind of wish they said for Frodo and Sam, but, I, you know... I understand why they said for Frodo. This is great. He just he runs right into the spears, and you know if you're not somewhat superhuman and have sort of a, a blessing upon you, you would die immediately. But he's Aragorn, and because personal example, everyone fights like hell. This is great. You knew this was coming. Um, I'm not sure if this is the exact moment this happens in the book, but the way Gollum just appears out of nowhere. Because he once Gollum hears Frodo says it must be destroyed, Gollum, as insane and horrible as he is, he knows that the only place to destroy the ring is Mount Doom. And so, rather than keep tracking them, because Sam's back in the picture, he just waits for them in Mount Doom. He could have been there for 
days or a week for all we. Oh, this is great here. He says that Gollum said Smeagol promised. Gollum says Smeagol lied. That's the first time. It's the first time he admits his own lies to others, even though we already know it. That's brutal. I love the rock to the head. There's so much physical struggle with Gollum that, like, you just see, I just don't even think about the CGI-ness of it because it's the physicality so seamless. Great final battle. I like that they don't do too much with this battle because, again, this is the stalling tactic part. Oh, Gimli swinging the, the axe behind his back. It's like a behind the, a between the legs, a dribble, a basketball. Oh, God. Here come the flying Naz Nazgul's, all of them, except for the main one, which Eowyn killed, which King of Angmar. So I always try and count. There should be eight flying Nazgul's because at least one has been killed. So... We're going to see the Eagles a few minutes down, who are the ones who are the deus ex machinas to, to save Sam and Frodo from the fiery remains of the, the volcano. And there's some controversy about that. I will get there. Legolas fighting hand-to-hand. -hand. Love it. I love that. You know, oh, this is great. It's coming. So this is a replay almost of the Nazgul coming right at, uh, coming right at Theoden and, and killing Theoden, but the Eagles... I love this. The eagles are coming. The eagles are coming. I think that's from the books. It might be from the hobbits as well. So people say, okay, if we have these eagles, which are as powerful as the Nazgul, and they can fly long distances, and they're good guys, why didn't they just fly the ring all the way into Mordor from the beginning? Why do they have to go up by ground? And, you know, there's a lot of explanations as to why that's the case. For one, you would never have a story if that were true. Um... I also believe that until the ring is destroyed and Sauron's defeated, I don't believe that they could fly into Mordor. I think Sauron's power would be able to keep them out. Certainly the Nazgul would be able to keep them out. Um, we have to assume the Nazgul, or the fell beasts, the flying beasts of the Nazgul, assume that they're a little bit stronger than the eagles. But we can also assume that the only way to get the ring into Mordor is by being sneaky and silent and clever. And that was the only way for Sauron not to let it get to this point. And this is straight from the book. All of the emotions. It, this looks great. You know, the, when they go from the close-ups on the set to the long shots of the sort of, you know, plank of rock... The ring looks amazing. It's always the perfect size and color. Elijah Wood's eyes. You can see the evil. That's not his. That's coming through him from the ring. You can see the evil as the ring speaks to him in the language of Mordor. Mordor. Great shot. And, and, and what's great is, as a reader of the books, you know that this is coming, where he just says, no, I will not destroy the ring. It's mine or whatever. The ring is mine. But it's still horrifying. In fact, it's more suspenseful if you know that it's coming because you're going, oh, no, oh, no, please don't, please. Like, you know, like, you don't want the movie to change it. That look, he looks totally different when his face is down. It's interesting to think if Sam had carried the ring for a little while. Like, let's say Sam still had the ring. Let's say Frodo died and Sam went to finish the mission. If Sam would have been able to drop it in, I think he would have. 
especially because he wouldn't have carried it as long. But he's also, you know, has very little moral ambiguity. This is great. It looks totally real. You know, I always say Gollum looks better at night in moonlight versus sunlight, but goddamn, he looks good in the pit of Mount Doom. This is great. Aragorn. First of all, that his sword... This is the first time we see how powerful he and his sword are. He's able to sword fight with a troll that's, you know, four times his size and probably weighs ten times what he does. And they totally sell this. You know what he's doing. He's tussling with Frodo, who's invisible. Bites it off the finger. Or bites the finger off, I should say, with the ring. And Legolas is going... Because the thing is, the most important thing is that the ring is destroyed. But if the ring is destroyed, but Aragorn is killed, then the humans still have a lot of problems because they don't have a true king to lead them. That shot where the camera goes through the ring and you see Gollum in ecstasy is classic. You know, and this is the totally like the countdown clock version, <laughs> uh, the fantasy version of the countdown clock. But we love it. Um, and I always try and figure out what's the percentage of Frodo going after Gollum here because he wants the ring, and what's the percentage of him just hating Gollum and wanting Gollum to die. I think it's 50-50. It's probably actually more towards the ring, but they're completely intertwined. So these are the two golems fighting each other, basically. I love this. This looks so real. So originally, actually, Sauron comes out. The original plan for the movies was for Sauron to be embodied like he was at the very, very, very beginning of Fellowship when they were telling the history of the ring. Here we go. Here's the shot, my precious. Doesn't even know it. He, he's so happy he doesn't realize he's about to die. And I think he's actually more concerned with losing the ring than with his actual death. I like that the ring sits there for a second and you're going, oh no, oh no, oh, it's not going to be destroyed. The ring's not going to be destroyed. Frodo knows what he's done, or, and more so what has been done to him. He wants to give up. But Sam won't let him. And Sam represents the little that's left in the world that he can love unconditionally. The way he says, don't you let go. You know, it's like, it's the suicide speech. I mean, it wouldn't exactly be suicide, but yeah, the way he says, don't you let go. Frodo's really considering just ending his life here. It's so horrifying. Plus, they don't think they're getting out, but Sam... It will always try and survive, even the craziest odds. God, this looks so good. And that's the thing. I mean, this this is the this is the true climax. All the battle stuff is great, but destroying the ring is what it's all about. And even if you're getting sick of the whole Frodo Sam ring thing, um this that whole last bit from the time they started climbing Mount Doom to now it's just so emotionally powerful and, and it really is what Tolkien is about as I say the best science fiction and fantasy they take care of the big stuff and they also take care of the small stuff so you get the amazing battle and effects 
but you also get the small character moments, which is the most important thing, because it's one thing to save the world, but the question is, is the world worth saving? And this is great how it collapses. This is a mixture of CGI, I believe, and the miniatures, or bigatures, as I call them, the very large um, miniatures. I love the reaction is everyone is in disbelief and, you know, can they dare to be relieved or happy? This is, I love that the shockwave hits before it collapses to the ground. It's so much cooler. Everyone's celebrating and then in two seconds... It's interesting. It's convenient. The shockwave is just <laughs> wide enough. Um, this is very biblical, by the way. This is, uh, so w when Moses gets the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai in uh, the book of Exodus, and then he discovers people have been praying to a golden calf, to false gods, uh, uh, the go um, God, the Lord, our God, creates a giant earthquake in the pit where like you know tens of thousands of people are swallowed up for their sins and this is great i love how big the explosion is in the volcano and just the change of their attitudes because they know they've won the war but the their love for frodo and sam and the sacrifice And, and that's what's great about fantasy, is the characters do have complexity to them. Yes, some of them may be two-dimensional or two-and-a-half-dimensional, but the struggle to hang on to our humanity and our morality at all costs is a lesson that we cannot get enough of. Even if true heroes do not exist, we need to believe that they can exist, or at least that true heroes can inspire us to be better than we are or were. Unlike Game of Thrones, which posits the opposite, that everyone is essentially bad, um, and it's all just about surviving you know, other bad people. Frodo's happy. I mean... You know, what's great is you know they're going to be rescued. Well, I don't know, actually, if you haven't read the book, if you would think they'd be rescued. But you, you, if you haven't read the book, you probably assume that they'll be rescued. But the fact that even if Frodo died here, he could die. If not happy, then free. Look, it's the first time he smiled, he can see the Shire. They just managed to make corny Hollywood moments work and what's great is Frodo for the first time in three movies for the most part is happy again and Sam who's always upbeat is now starting to feel regret at all the things he didn't do including his love Rosie Cotton flowers in her hair And that's the thing, and that's why the, the gay themes of the movie, it doesn't matter what their sexuality is, but if you really want to get into it, you know, Sam's been in love with this woman from the beginning, but, you know, I'm a believer that sexuality is a continuum. But they're brothers. 
they're brothers and best friends. And, you know, I, I'm pretty um, physically close with both my male and female friends. Um, you know, me and my buddies are always hugging each other and putting our arms around each other. And, you know, it's 2015, people. You know, if if you're a homophobe and you think touching another guy is gay and that's somehow bad, then I, I there's no help for you. Um, get your head out of your ass. This is a beautiful relationship. And sexuality is really the least important thing. I love how the eagles come in the upper right, and because of the glare, you don't even notice it at first because the image of them on the rock is so beautiful. This looks great. The scale of the eagles is awesome. They are about the same size as the flying Nazgul. This must be great. I think Frodo thinks he's going to heaven. I mean, why wouldn't you? So from here until the credits roll is the most controversial part of the movie. People thought that the sort of epilogue where they explained where everyone goes and the reuniting went on too long. This part's very cheesy where the slow motion, everyone's jumping on the bed with Frodo. Um, I kind of think you needed it. I would have done it a little bit differently. Um, it's a little bit of a callback to when he wakes up in Rivendell after Elrond has healed him partially from the stab by the ring race in Weathertop. Gandalf's the first face he sees there as well. And then Sam is next in that scene, but they save Sam for last with this one. You know, they're all so proud of him, but, you know, they never really doubted his ability to do so. That if he failed, it would have been for external reasons. And I, I do like that they're happy to just see that he's alive. And it's not just, you know, oh my God, you're Jesus and you saved the world. It's, you're our friend and, and we got through this together and you're alive. So I would have cut this scene either out or way shorter or just framed it differently. But it is the first time we see the Fellowship back together since the end of the first movie. And so, you know... It's really the only time we get to see all nine of them together again. Or I guess eight, because Boromir died. So the eight surviving ones. I like Legolas. Very understated, very elf-like. But for him, that's actually a pretty big smile. Here comes the great Vigo smile. The ladies love him, from the actresses down to the wardrobe and makeup. It's not a, a hidden secret that Vigo was well-loved on the set. Also a great guy. And very talented and lots of stuff. He's one of these guys who rides motorcycles and surfs and does all sorts of stuff. Um, and this is great because in the Elrond scene in the middle of Fellowship of the Ring, when he wakes up, Sam is acting how these other guys are acting. Because they haven't really been through nearly what they've gone through now. But this is the, you know, we're happy, but never, you know, nothing's going to be the same. And we went through something that no one will ever understand, even though Frodo will write it down in a book, which would become Lord of the Rings. This is a great shot of the city. Seems like it's been somewhat restored, so, you know, perhaps this is a few weeks or even a month after Frodo destroyed the ring. The, the, the wide CGI shot of the crowd is great, but when they're applauding in a little bit here, 
it seems a little empty. Beautiful crown. It's so hard to pull off crowns for men that either don't look corny or look too feminine. The design of this is one that could look a little feminine, but because of how broad it is and because of the specific artwork, and it's probably took them days and days and days and days to make, um, Gandalf crowns him, uh, which is interesting. He's sort of like the 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 minister or, or the you know the priest, I suppose. Who else is gonna crown him? Looks great. I mean, Vigo looks great no matter what he wears, but he totally sells being a king here. Okay, right here with the clapping and the people. This looks a little small. And this is what a great king would say. It's not about me. It's about all of us. Let's rebuild peace together. Oh, there it is. Two of them. They do sell that chemistry, even though they've little to work with. Faramir and Eowyn. That one, that girl is beautiful. They they hover on her for a while. I knew a girl like that who uh, from college. Great look. When I heard him start to sing, it really gave me chills. Music is a big theme in the books. They tried to bring it into the movie. At the beginning of this movie, we had Mary and Pippin dancing, a great Hobbit drinking song. And people are bowing, but they... They know him well, and they, she loves him. This is great, Amor. You know, probably the second most important warrior after Aragorn, I would say. And, you know, as Amor is going to be king of Rohan, he gives him a nod, but not a deep bow. This is a great reveal. Again, not in the book, but introducing the Arwen character into the movies. This is beautiful. I love that she wants to surprise him. It's interesting that he didn't consider that she'd be there. And, you know, unlike uh, the uh, people of Rohan who met and fought with the elves at Helm's Deep in the second movie, I like how she tries to play you know, deferential to him, and he was like, he's heartbroken that you'd even think that she's not his equal or even superior to him. But the smile on Elrond's face introducing the bride, basically. It's great because they combine it, and they crown the king, but it's also a wedding scene. There he is, Agent Smith, finally satisfied as Elrond. Uh, the two of them have great chemistry. I'm such a big fan of that they, uh, a big fan that they added Arwen into all of this. Uh, I, I'm gonna be doing a commentary um, with my buddy Adam Tuck. Actually, this might be released afterwards, so I might have said it already. But he, I think, is gonna have problems with this. He's more of a literalist when it comes to the book. But I thought you really needed Arwen and Liv Tyler knocked it out of the ballpark, and this sums up the entire series. It's a green screen, but it looks very realistic. And this is what makes Aragorn a king. He knows he's a king because of his blood and his name. But he could never be as brave as the hobbits, considering their stature.
in the same way where Frodo offers him the ring at the end of the first movie to test Aragorn, and Aragorn doesn't take it and acknowledges that only the hobbits are strong enough to, to, to destroy the ring, and he's not. And so he's the best fighter, he's the best leader, he's the best king, but the hobbits are the true heroes. Especially because they came from the furthest reaches of Middle-earth. And I love, it comes right into the map, which is straight from the books. I love fantasy maps. I love that they use this throughout um, the trilogy. Um, I have some maps in paper form. I actually, uh, while taking a break for this podcast, ordered a book called The Atlas of Middle-earth, which I should have bought a long time ago. But I already have so many Lord of the Rings books. But I got a good deal on Amazon Definitely, if you ever want any of these obscure things related to Lord of the Rings or whatever, you can get stuff on sale on Amazon. So, you know, people are saying this takes too long, but the reality is, in the book, there are numerous chapters after the final battle and after the ring is destroyed having to do with the Shire. In the book, they come back to the Shire, and Saruman has somehow come with Wormtongue and taken over the Shire and enslaved them. And they hint at this in his vision in Galadriel's pool and the Fellowship of the Ring, them being enslaved. Instead, they kill Saruman at the beginning of this movie. In the book, there's a whole chapter or two called the 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 uh, scouring of the Shire, where these guys come back thinking the war is over, and then they have to go around killing a bunch of bad hobbits or hobbits who have been corrupted by Saruman. It's pretty brutal. I totally get why they don't put in the movie. Got to keep the hobbits one-dimensionally good and loving and peaceful. So for me, actually, the ending is not long at all, just in comparison to the book. This is great. You see all four... They're all sad in their own ways because of what they've been through, but also they love each other. And, you know, Merry and Pippin don't see Frodo for really two full movies, all of the two towers and most of this movie, but it doesn't matter. They've all had their own experiences, you know, fighting, fighting Sauron. And there's Rosie, the beautiful hobbit. She's so perfectly cast. She's adorable, full-bodied, looks like a hobbit, also a beautiful woman. And this is great. They don't even show it. They just go, ooh. Pippin's loving it. Frodo especially. This is great because, you know, Sam, when they're about to die on the rock in the lava 10 minutes ago, this is Sam's one regret, and he, he is able to, to live it out. Um, in a beautiful short wedding scene. And that's the thing. They cut between all of these epilogue scenes very quickly, and they're filmed great. And after you've spent, you know, close to 12 hours watching these movies, you need a little closure. And so I really have no problem with any of this stuff. And the Grey Haven stuff where they sail away in a little bit is so beautiful, it's worth it just for that. I suppose you could have jumped pretty much to the Grey Havens, but it would have lost a lot of depth. And it's important to show that Frodo is trying to go on with his life. This is the first part where he narrates, I think, or you just hear his inner monologue. There's no going back. So, you know, the the, the combination of the stab that he got from the ring wraiths combined with the ring destroying his body and soul makes it so he can't come back. But Tolkien 
who fought in World War One and almost died and only got out of it because he was injured. A lot of Lord of the Rings talks about the horrors of war. And so on the surface, you know, Frodo's sort of physically damaged by the ring, but really this is Tolkien talking about the horrors of war and, you know, trauma and PTSD, what we would today call PTSD, you know. You might only spend six months in Afghanistan, but it could end up, you know, ruining you for the rest of your life. It's represented by the stab wound from the first movie. Four years to the day, so we've we've jumped, you know, about three to four years ahead. I love that. And when he says the wound never really healed, he's really saying I've never really healed, and he'll restate that again. This is great. The font is totally on point. It's a great idea that they wrote a book thousands of years ago that got passed down to us. You know, if you've read the book, you know Bilbo's still alive, but if you haven't, it's a nice surprise. And not just that he's alive, but that without his ring, he's aged. His age has caught up with him. You know, in, in the book, um, or in just the story of, of Lord of the Rings, in the beginning, Bilbo's like 111 years old. It's his birthday party, which is, you know, old for a hobbit, but not super old. But he looks like he's essentially 30 years old in Hobbit years. And so as soon as he loses the ring, he just becomes ancient. And he's still asking about the ring. I mean, he's, he's, you know, he has some dementia at this point, obviously. But you can see that even the destruction of the ring hasn't solved his obsession. He still says it's a pity that he lost it. And this is exactly why he needs to leave Middle-earth, why they both do. Because as much as they hate the ring, as much as Frodo's happy it's destroyed, they'll never be free of the addiction. You know, it's like people who are heroin addicts or alcoholics. You know, you, you may get uh, help, you may go to rehab, but even if you never touch a drink the rest of your life, the temptation will always be there. This is a great reveal. This is an amazing image in the book, but this is straight out of a lot of the concept art by Alan Lee and other um, famous Lord of the Rings uh, uh, artists whose concept art was used with their permission and consultation in the movie. And so, all right, so we've got Galadriel and Elrond, the two most powerful elves. The man in the middle is Galadriel's you know, husband, consort, whatever. The elves are headed back across the sea from where they come from. Um, not sure if it's clear to non-readers that elves are not native to this part of the planet, not native to Middle-earth. So Bilbo is allowed to come because he was a ring bearer. And, you know, you can probably figure out that Frodo's going with him, even if you haven't read it, because Frodo was also a ring bearer. In fact, Frodo was way more of a ring bearer than Bilbo. Bilbo used it to be invisible a couple times and always kept it with him, but he didn't have to go nearly what Frodo did. This look from Kate Blanchett. This is why she's a great actor. Right there. Mystery, happiness, sadness. 
earthiness, ethereal, otherworldly, all in one look and smile. Love Kate Blanchett. This is really sad. Almost more sad for me than, than Frodo going because Gandalf, you know, up until Aragorn sort of takes the lead in this movie, Gandalf is the beacon of hope. He just delivers this poetry great. And he doesn't shy away from making it a sad moment. And he says, He says, I'm not going to say don't weep because not all tears are an evil. He doesn't cry. I think that would have been cool if he had a, a teardrop. But his eyes are a little watery. And he's a demigod, so you can understand. Interestingly, the elves are out of frame here. You don't see them at the moment. And this is like the scene in the bedroom where everyone's jumping on the bed with him. It, it, you know, it maybe drags on a little long, but after everything that these four have been through, especially with Sam... You know, it choked me up when I saw it. I think it actually choked me up more on subsequent viewings because when I first saw it in the theater, there were some people in the theater who weren't happy with the long ending, and that sort of affected me. But when I re-saw it in the theater, and with each review, uh, re-viewing, re-watching, uh, it's more and more touching to me. Sean Astin is great. He has to carry so much emotionally in this movie. You know, Frodo's just tortured and tormented. Pippin and Mary are kind of the funny guys, although they all pull off, oh, real tears. So, okay, story about this. This is a little uh, filmmaking 101. They filmed this whole scene, and all of them were, like, bawling, and they got really emotional, and something happened with the camera or the sound, and they found out they had to redo the whole scene. So this was all supposed to be in one take because they all wanted to just get each other worked up into sadness, and then they had to redo it, but you would never know. They sell, they sell the sadness so well. And, you know, Pippin, who's been kind of an annoying character, really comes into his own in this movie and has gained some wisdom. You don't, you don't have to be the smartest. In, oh, see, this, this makes me, honestly, I'm, I'm like slightly choked up right now. I'm not kidding you. This, this look on Sam's face and the, the intensity and ferocity of the hug is just heartbreaking, but beautiful. And this is what the war was about. This was the stakes. These were the stakes of the war. These friendships, these moments, these people. You know, in Battlestar Galactica, Edward James Olmos, who plays Admiral William Adama, the lead military figure and one of the two main characters of the show and the uh very first episode actually in the miniseries pilot he has a great line where he talks about you know do, do, does humanity deserve survival and he says uh, uh here comes the smile for frodo And Adama in Battlestar basically says, you know, it's not about survival. It's about are we worthy for survival? And, you know, if nothing else, the hobbits are worthy for survival. The fight against Sauron was, here's the smile, 
the fight against Sauron was worth it just to save these people because they're so good. And they're people. They're hobbits, but they're people. And that look just speaks for itself. And this image is phenomenal. You just want to be there, go on that boat, go west to whatever heaven, heavenly existence lies there. Yeah, the line from Adama and Battlestar is, it's not enough to survive, one has to be worthy of survival. And that one is represented by Sam, Samwise Gamgee, former gardener slash bodyguard of Frodo, and arguably the true hero of the story, or at least a co-hero with Frodo. This, he represents everything we want this world to be. He's natural, he's unconditionally good and loving. You buy this family immediately. And this is what it's all about. It starts in Hobbiton, in the Shire, and it ends in the Shire. And, uh, you know, I don't think Sam has moved on from Frodo's leaving. He never fully will. Um, in the book, he actually becomes mayor. And spoiler alert, in the appendices, we find out that eventually, as Sam gets older, he actually ages slightly slower because he did use the ring in the book briefly. And when his family has passed... Or at least when his wife has passed, he actually sails to the West as well, which I think is a cool concept. But the symmetry here, and just the notion that Sam would have the final line and the final look, it works great. And he just says, well, I'm home. And it's all about the hobbits. And there you have it, folks. Return of the King. The best executed trilogy since uh, Star Wars. Um, certainly there's been no trilogies nearly this good since then. Hobbit was far inferior. Matrix, while I loved it, was very flawed. Avatar 2, 3, and 4, I think are going to be a total disaster, but that's just because I hated the first one. So I don't know where the next big trilogy comes from. Best fantasy trilogy ever. I mean, I, at this point, I watch it way more than the original Star Wars movies for a lot of reasons. I love reading sci-fi. But there's so much sci-fi on screen, television and film, and so little great fantasy. Even with the success of this and Game of Thrones, there's really not a lot of well-executed fantasy. And part of it's because Tolkien invented the genre and perfected it at the same time. You know, I love fantasy books. I've read a ton of non-Lord of the Rings fantasy books, but I always come back to this one. And, you know, the book is much different. The pace is very slow in the book. A lot of it is descriptive about the various terrain and the places that they go, which is why the locations and the sets had to be so upfront. I love that they show the drawings here, the, uh, the concept art, which is totally on point. It's hard to tell whether it's just pure art or a blending of the picture, actual photos, because it looks just like them. 
So I hope you enjoyed this. I actually recorded this one first just because there's so much in Return of the King, and I thought it would be interesting to go out of order. I'm going to be doing a fellowship podcast with um, my buddy Adam Tuck, who is an equally huge Lord of the Rings nerd. I'm not sure what order I'll release it in, but if you've heard the fellowship podcast, then you will know, and if you haven't heard it yet, then it is coming soon. These movies are great, infinitely rewatchable. There's so little wrong with them. Even like tiny corny moments are over so quick and there's other stuff going on. The acting's incredible. Probably the best ensemble epic cast ever assembled. Um, never to be matched as far as I can tell. Um, the aesthetic is so real. You really feel like you're in Middle Earth the entire time. And kudos to Peter Jackson and everybody else involved. I wish they had maintained this level of excellence in the Hobbit movies, but they did not, and, you know, that's fine for me, honestly. I, I didn't want anything to challenge these movies, and as much as I love the Hobbit book, and it was absurd, they made one children's book into three movies, whereas they made, you know, one giant adult epic, The Lord of the Rings, into three movies makes way more sense, but The Lord of the Rings is what it's all about. There's environmental themes, there's themes about warfare, maintaining your humanity, heroism, bravery, fear, trust and distrust. And again, my favorite, uh, you know, fantasy and science fiction are dark, but they aren't dark in the Game of Thrones sense of, you know, people being super dark. I mean, a lot of the characters here, some of the characters here are very, you know, dark and damaged characters. Others are sort of ambiguous in their morality, even though they're good guys. But in the end, the darkness of the situation comes from, or I should say the darkness in the story and property comes from the scenario that they're going through. And it makes them all better for it. And the people who are sort of, you know, amoral or don't have their feet firmly planted, like Denethor, Wormtongue, and others, you know, they get their comeuppance or are just unable to handle the situation. The good guys sometimes die, but if they don't, they come out better for it. But it's all about what are you fighting for. It's not enough to survive. One has to be worthy of survival. And we need to think about that about ourselves. I'm not saying we're not worthy of survival. I just think we need to consider the reasons that we are worthy for survival and ways that we can become more worthy for survival. So I hope you enjoyed this commentary and that you've enjoyed the other ones or will enjoy the other ones. I love those movies just as much. This movie won like eight Academy Awards, including Best Director, Best uh, Producer, or I should say Best Picture. And uh, the credit's gone forever because they show the whole fan club thing. So I will stop here. Um, and, uh, you know, it's nice to, uh, nice to sort of sail away into the world of Middle Earth every once in a while and, and you know, learn things about reality, but in a different world. So hope you all have a wonderful day or night. And I will talk to you soon. Bizzle out.